Drive All Night is supported by listeners like you. To find out how you can help, please visit patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus. There you'll learn what exciting rewards we're offering for your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash songsoftoryamus to help us continue to make high quality and Torytainment for you. I could justify anything. It was much easier to deny everything, to pretend that uh, I wasn't hurt or that I wasn't angry. And um, a lot of it's going back to being a child. When you're really, really little, you know, you're honest. You say, I really don't like you. And you don't feel guilty about it. It's okay. You don't have to be friends with everybody. Hey, everybody. You're listening to Drive All Night, the songs of Tori Amos. We are your hosts. I'm Ephraim Jr. And I'm David Anderson. And on today's episode, we're talking about Precious Things, the fourth track from Tori's first album, Little Earthquakes. What a lovely day for an exorcism. What's that line from? It it is, in fact, from The Exorcist. And I could sure use an exorcism, which is exactly what this song is, in part. So, yeah. Exercising your demons. Of course. Particularly live. Oh, yeah. I mean, let's not get ahead of ourselves. She's exercising her demons. For sure. But are you exercising your demons? I'm doing it right along with her. Oh, every time. Misery loves company. What's so exciting about Precious Things to me, and we're just going to dive right in, obviously, is that I have never tired of hearing it. I never get tired of hearing Precious Things. I have never actually listened to the entire song all the way through. Really? Just <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> well, hello ladies and gentlemen. No, We're not here. Really. I never get tired of it either. And you know, frankly, I'd like to take Tori to task from something. I am exhausted with her. Because every song, as we work our way through little earthquakes, I'm like, no, this this is definitely Tori's most iconic song. No wait, it's silent all these years. No wait, maybe it's Chris No, it's precious thing. Which is which is it? I don't know. I'm not sure. Maybe it's winter. Maybe it's winter, exactly. We'll see. What if it's happy phantom? I am not I can't take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so excited to be revisiting Little Earthquakes and doing these episodes in full because of the power of Precious Things. This is the center point of the album for me, even though it's not in the center of the album. This to me is like the moment. We'll get into quotes and stuff, but she talked about wanting to write one of those like crazy guitar solos, but for the piano, like she did with Cornflake Girl. Mm-hmm. But like this to me, the playing, the lyricism, the musicality, everything about it. This has to be the backbone of this album. I believe you've laid the groundwork for this statement. And you've said before, this is the heart of the album, right. the backbone, for me. the centerpiece. I'm not entirely sure I 100% agree really? with that. Not really? that there has to be just one, you know. 
As Tangina said in Poltergeist, this house has many hearts. I think maybe <laughs> right. Little Earthquakes has a few hearts. I so. think for me, Precious Things is just the rawest, most truthful moment. I can't explain why I feel that way. I thought everybody did. I think you're going to have to. So I'm just going to go there. <laughs> I'm just going to go there the way the song itself does and ask you, when was the first time you heard Precious Things, Eve? So I had purchased Little Earthquakes from a used CD store mm. called CDX in Las Cruces, New Mexico. And... I took it home and I was like, oh, weird. And I got all the way through Me and a Gun before I really connected to it. So I was like, okay. I so I, In that way, I don't remember necessarily the very first time I heard Precious Things, like what I felt, except for probably like, weird, who's this weird? I was listening to a lot of like gay stuff though. I was listening to Paul Abdul, Tara Kim. Abdul's not gay. She's not gay. She made me gay though. <laughs> it's weird how that works. It is weird. I was in a very pop mindset, but by the time I got to Mina Gunn, Mina Gunn was so honest and I heard it because it was stripped down, no music. I was able to really focus on the lyrics and I heard what she was saying and it really shook me. And, I, and then, of course, I listened to Mina Gunn again and again and again. And that prompted me to go back to the beginning and really kind of dive into the story of the album or what she was trying to say with the whole thing and Precious Things soon after snagged me away it's a, a great song it's a song that i love to sing still to this day but yes precious things it's not my favorite song in tori's canon but if i had to select one song in her canon to take with me forever this would be the song even though it's not my favorite song is that weird it makes sense to me okay yeah because there's something so moving about the song in what she's singing about and how she's playing everything's working here it's such a good song I think that goes back to kind of what I was saying. If this is maybe not her most iconic song, I don't know how we would qualify or quantify that right. anyway. But if there was one song that most accurately summed up, encapsulated everything that Tori is and does, this would be a contender for sure. Yes. I certainly don't remember the first time I heard it. I was caught in a bit of a crucify loop, as I think I've mentioned before, because that's the reason that I bought the album and mm -hmm. I, you know, primarily listened to Just Crucify for quite a while. I do know that Precious Things in particular was not like anything I was listening to at the time. And just, I'm sure it seemed very aggressive, maybe not necessarily off-putting to me, but just not consistent with what I was listening to or interested in at the time, which is kind of funny that I don't remember it appealing to me right off the bat because if Tori has a very, very small handful of songs that I think could qualify as, I don't know, horror soundtracks of sorts, mm -hmm. and this is certainly on that list to me, not only with the subject matter, but even like the rhythmic breathing kind of gives me shades of the breathing sound effect from Friday the 13th with yeah. the kick, kick, kick. Oh, yeah. And something about the piano arrangement, too, or just that main riff is not totally unlike the theme song from Halloween to me, too. Mm. Like sped up with a rock edge, of course, but there's like something in the DNA there that's not too far off. So that's kind of my language for sure. So you're surprised that it didn't appeal to you then right, right away? Right. But it's certainly one of those songs, as you were saying, that there have certainly been tours and shows where Tori didn't perform it but it seems like it's always present. Mm -hmm. To me, going to a show where Precious Things is not there is as odd as going to a show where Tori isn't there. Right, <laughs> like right. It's just kind it's of true. expected and not yeah. like, all right, here it comes. It's always a moment. Yeah. So. It's always great. It is. Yeah. And part of that is the audience reaction. There's always a very strong response. Mm -hmm. And this song it's has evolved over time. It's always kept its core, 
but there have been certain things about it that have shifted as time has gone by. That's what I think makes the song so exciting to dive into too, is to track, and when we get to the live section, obviously, to track those changes and the meaningfulness of those changes and why maybe. And that's going to be a doozy. Oh yeah, I know, I know. I'm very <laughs> excited. Um, how are you? Well, good. <laughs> okay. I'm more than happy with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would like to say thank you to Shay Stymack, who put together this research document that we're going to pick apart and use to create this episode. So thank you, Shay, our researcher. You're the best. Thanks, Shay. Thanks, Shay. Should we talk about our guests? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Later in the episode, I'll be talking to my dear friend, Liz Knickerbocker, who has never heard Precious Things before. I'm going to get her live in the moment reaction to her first time hearing Precious Things. I don't know. It's always risky to share Tori with someone who's never heard her before. It's kind of like asking someone to tell you that your baby's cute. I know. <laughs> That's a good point. Or like, how do I look in this dress? Right. Like, do you really want to know? Uh, <laughs> Maybe we should just let this go. It is very risky. However, I think this song stands on its own, and I'm very curious to find out if it does. So we're going to play Precious Things and get her honest reaction and talk to her a little bit about her music. She's a violin player, so she'll approaching it from a music standpoint too oh perfect yes so that's an exciting thing that we're doing we didn't want to book too many guests we could have booked a hundred people to talk about their thoughts on precious things however there's so much to talk about so let's just get to it i'm ready you want to do it yep oh my god we're gonna do it david and then we'll never have not done it we have to pace ourselves though let's not run faster i mean so we ran sort of fast yeah i could never run fast let's just jog so we jogged no big deal so we jogged. What's it to you? Yeah. So we speed walked here. Right. At least we didn't fall and twist our ankles. We're going to start with a cover. This is the Vitamin String Quartet performing their version of Precious Things. And we'll be right back to talk about all those precious things. music and it started to take me into flashbacks of my grandmother and uh, she used to put me in a corner and she would read me something I think from Leviticus I can't remember but um, she 
was convinced that I was going to give my soul to God and my body to a man that I would marry. Um, but at five years old, I knew that uh, we were enemies. So um, in my mind, I was always trying to find ways to get away from this kricha. So uh, I thought of things, and my mother thought I was a demon for thinking them, but I think she would smile out of the corner because I think she felt the same way. So um, behind this church, with this music going on and on in my head, um, I started to really think that maybe just one day I could, I could run faster. Let's talk about everywhere this song has appeared. Okay. Which really is everywhere. I think it's on my album. Little Earthquakes was released on January 13th, 1992 in the UK and in February 1992 in the US. Hmm. That's the first place it appears. <laughs> Moving on. Tell me about the Precious Things promo. Did you ever own that? I did not. I've never been a collector of like the rare items. I'm a collector of tour experiences is my mm. <laughs> how I say it. You know, I have the vinyls and I've got like the things that I want. A long time ago, I used to collect things and I realized I was not playing things and like I wouldn't let anyone touch anything. I'm like, that's not me as a person, really. Me too. So I like to collect things that I use. Same. I do not want what I haven't got. And one of those things that I haven't got is the Precious Things promo. <laughs> it, w- it was on my list for a long time. Really? And somewhere along the way, I just lost focus. It's it's very attractive, though. It's a picture disc. It's a picture right? disc. Yeah. It is the most rare of the promos. Um, Atlantic was considering, at the end of the tour cycle, Atlantic considered releasing Precious Things as a single, as a video. It would have been the sixth single from the album. Isn't that shocking? It would have been insane to have half of your debut album released right. as singles. Right. Yeah. But they scrapped it ultimately. It would have been an awesome video, I think. Why do you think they scrapped it? Do you think they'd gotten sort of wrung all the life out of the album that they thought they could and she was already preparing to record Under the Pink? I think the reason they might have considered it was because the fifth single, Crucify, was such a breakthrough hit. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, let's try to push this a little bit. Maybe that's why they considered doing it initially. But for scrapping it, maybe it didn't have radio appeal necessarily it's one of those it's not necessarily a deep cut i wouldn't say because everybody knows the song and you don't have to go too deep to find precious things but it's definitely an album cut it feels like an album cut i can't imagine hearing this on the radio remember college radio in the 90s that was a thing this is the type of thing that would have been pushed to college radio i went to college in the 90s wait no don't include that i went to (laughs) (laughs) i drove past a college in the 90s Uh, just a signal of the radio station i don't remember any college radio and i certainly don't remember it introducing me to anything that would have been alternative (laughs) and life-changing i like how precious things well i had a different experience when i was in college the college radio station Crux, K-R-U-X, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, changed my life. I heard so many things on that station. I Rasputina, Frank, the lesbian folk singer who I love. They were pretty formational in my development. I discovered a lot through college radio, but I never, I don't think I've ever heard Tori on college radio. And in fact, when I would request it, they were like, no, and they wouldn't play it. I was robbed of a college experience on all fronts. No college radio. I did not experiment with my sexuality or anyone else's. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing. Uh, I want my money back, though. So if you can get your hands on a Precious Things promo CD, consider yourself a collector. You get your hands on it, hand it off to me. Right. If you have an extra, we'll always take it. Sure. If you have two extra, 
I can give one to David then as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this song never achieved single status, but boohoo, we're not going to feel sorry for you, Precious Things, because it's been everywhere. You have had arguably the longest life of any Tory song. That's true. And again, we'll get there, but I want to set us up for this. Is this Tory's most oft performed song? I, I think it might be. Of all time. I, I think, think that, it might be too. Yeah. Yeah. So this song appears on Little Earthquakes, the album. It also appears on Little Earthquakes, the VHS. Performers do have this power. They can keep what you're giving them and not give it back. It's how you think. You can stop the wheel. You have to keep the wheel going, which is intake, outtake. Crucify, the limited edition box set, released June 15th, 1992, live. She does it live in the UK. It appears on the Live from New York VHS tape. It appeared on To Venus and Back, of course. Amazing. As the first track on the live album. Amazing as it was on not every show of the Plug Tour, but most of them. It appears on Tales of a Librarian, a reworked Greatest Hits version. Also, welcome to sunny Florida, the live, live. release from the Scarlet's Walk Tour. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's on a piano, an alternate mix. And get this, it appears on 26 legs and boots. 26! Lord! Calm down. <laughs> Calm down, precious. Seriously, we can all hear you. You don't have to yell. It also was on the live at Montreux, which was recorded in 91 and 92, but released in 2008. So that's why we put it up there. Her special live release from Russia with Love. Mm-hmm. And I died, but I thanked him. Can you believe that? Sick. Holding on to his And it was dramatically reinvented for inclusion on Gold Dust with an orchestral arrangement released in October of 2012. And last but certainly not least, it was, of course, included on the Little Earthquakes reissue from April of 2015. Right. Countless 90s mixes, countless cassette tape mixes that I've made as well, it has appeared on. I mean, aside from albums that are not Little Earthquakes, is there an official release that this song has ever not been included on? 
Interesting. Not really. It didn't appear on any of the original bootlegs. She wasn't in a very precious thingsy place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's nice to see that a song that we consider so important in her body of work, she also looks at as very important in her body of work, which you can glean from how many places that she's put it on, <laughs> like other locations that you can find the song, you know? Maybe this is best saved for the live section, but it's unclear to me whether Tori still has that strong of a connection to it or she just knows that this is such a bridge between her and the audience and she's going to get that reaction. No matter what. Every time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it could be a little bit of A, a little bit of B. True. <laughs> column A, column B. Let's talk about the credits on the song as it is on the album. Tori Amos, of course, plays acoustic and electric pianos. Mm, plug me in. And vocals. Carlo Nuccio does the drums. Will McGregor, the bass. Steve Caton, guitars, acoustic and electric. Eric Ross was in charge of keyboard programming. Jake Freeze did the rap pedal. Eric Caton and Tori did the backgrounds. Is a rap pedal like a term they coined for a unique sound on this particular song, or is that an actual instrument? Um, no, to- it's a rat distortion pedal, so it's like a pedal for guitar that's like a, it just it gives distortion. Okay. Yeah, it's called a rap pedal. Hmm. Recorded by Eric Ross and Dan Nebenzal, mixed by Paul McKenna, and produced by Tori Amos and Eric Ross. And here's just before we get into anything that we gotta say, let's listen to a little bit from our interview with Steve Caton about how this came to be. Tori called me and she was noticeably upset, you know. And she said, they gave me $4,000. Now, first of all, this record that's been rejected is a multi-six-figure record, right? So she said, the record company's given me $4,000 to do four demos. So I said, okay, I'll get the guys and we'll do it. You know? So the bass player from my band Will McGregor, who Tori knew because Tori had sung with Climate Crisis, got Will, and he pulled in this guy, Carlo Nuccio, who was from New Orleans, but he was living in L.A. Great, great drummer. We rehearsed at a uh, rehearsal studio on Lancashire in North Hollywood called Oasis. I didn't bring my guitar. It was the drums, bass, piano. Eric Ross was there, and they said, well, why didn't you bring your guitar? And I, I said, I think it's really good that we hash out the rhythm section. So we hashed all that out. The tracks were recorded at Track Records in North Hollywood. On Vineland, I think. That was just drums, bass, and piano. Probably some vocal, probably her, you know, scratch vocals too. And the rest of those, the rest of those four songs, the demos, uh, the the, the demos, air quotes, were done in, Tori and Eric were living in this little guest house. And Eric had his little, he had a console in a little room like this size and some, and we did all the guitar tracks there in this little room, the amp in a closet, and Tori be out making pasta for dinner and stuff, you know. Those four $4,000 demos are on that record, that multi-six-figure record. Those songs that are on the record are those demos. They remixed them, and then she went and cut China in, in England, and they put the, song, put the record out. So that's a little bit from the inside. What do you think? I love that some of the best songs or the most pivotal songs from this album were written and recorded under pressure, so to speak. Like, we got to get this out. We have one more chance. We have $12. And they end up with four of the most incredible songs, maybe from her entire body of work. I think so. Like The most, at least for me, Girl, Precious Things, Little Earthquakes, not necessarily Tear in Your Hand for me. 
but Girl Precious Things and Little Earthquakes are my top three songs on this mm-hmm. album. Imagine this album without that. And it's not even, they sound different. They sound, they really have this driving rhythm, all of them. They all have a, and it's a unique rhythm that you don't hear another artist kind of pulling off. It's very Tory, they're very Tory. So it's nice to hear that like she just went into the studio and under pressure, like you said, got it. Like it just all clicked. Do you think it was pressure or more of a kind of we have nothing left to lose things so we're just going to leave it all out there and do exactly what we want and it may seem crazy but we're going to take these $12 and make the exact music we want to make and if they don't like it they can go fuck themselves I never considered that but that's possibly it they were coming off of this is the 90s this is early 90s coming off that 80s sound that they were all pushing in the LA music scene which if you listen back to Why Can't Tori Read isn't necessarily a reflection of that 80s sound but if you listen to like Devo and like things like how it evolved into this new wavy thing that was happening if you like if you listen to Cindy Marble's music on our Nothing Like a Man episode like you can hear if you listen to Nothing Like a Man itself you can kind of hear some of the inspiration for the rhythms and the way they're using guitars mm-hmm. in Precious Things and the Earthquakes I think but it still came across so fresh because it was piano centric it's interesting because this music in that regard is so of its time but it still doesn't sound dated it doesn't to me yeah maybe like the low budget kind of reveals itself in terms of the sound quality Mm -hmm. especially on the original but again it's not like oh man this is straight from the 80s or 1991 there's no like saxophone solo that like oh man although i'd be fine with that although yeah me too (laughs) um should we get into the quotes yes you want to take this first one from what's on birmingham uk 21st December 1991, winter solstice. Tori says, I'd always been Mary Poppins with dirty panties, but instead of terrorizing others, I terrorized myself. I turned my anger inwards and sat in a corner, bored out of my mind. There has to be a healing process, the ability to laugh at the end of the day. You can crawl inside your pain. It doesn't have to be all throw up. Sometimes I feel uncomfortable. Sometimes I defy people. But my strength is that I can crawl inside my heart. I'm becoming aware of why I feel what I feel. That doesn't mean I'm at peace, but I can accept the turbulence. I'm learning to be a free agent, not other people's victim. Instead of terrorizing others, I terrorize myself. What do you think she means by that? I think I relate to that. There are others who act out when they're unhappy or reacting to something or processing something. And I think I always turn inwards and I'm maybe the hardest on myself. And even if that's not happening, I always think I do a lot of internal processing. And for the most part, I'm not lashing out at other people. I kind of withdraw. So to the outside observer, it might be a little more difficult to read or ascertain what's happening. Whereas someone is violent or whatever that is, you kind of like have their number, right? That doesn't mean I'm at peace, but I can accept the turbulence. In a way, that's so profound to me. Once you reach that state, once you know that life has its ups and downs and people, you know, have moods and you're dealing with things every day, like being able to roll with the punches, being able to accept the changes, I think that is all you can hope for, right? Agreed. And we've come back to this idea on every episode of Little Earthquake so far, which I think makes sense. So I'm reminded of those conversations. I think the first step is not being numb to the way you feel, being aware of how you feel and maybe even knowing why that might be, but not necessarily feeling obligated to do something with that or heal all your patterns or all your material, certainly not right away, but sometimes just being able to acknowledge how you feel and be in touch with that and sort of start to trace the reasons why is hugely important. From the Little Earthquake songbook, this is what's written about precious things. Heavily into the Sandman comics by now, the nights were late, candles all over the house dripping where they would. 
Wax is a bit more fun to play with than bubblegum. The doors were open by now. I could resist, but there's always air suction. Interesting. Tori was living my goth fantasy. <laughs> she was. Sitting there reading her Sandman comics by Dripping candlelight. Candle wax all Who over. knows what yeah. she was listening to. And what do you think <laughs> she meant by the doors were open by now? Meaning the doors were open to this kind of underworld of thought and the exploration of self, I think. She'd unlocked Pandora's box, as you would say, on all of this stuff that she had to work through. She could try to resist, but the air suction of the other room is pulling her in. And maybe the door really opened with Crucify when she says the demons came or whatever mm-hmm. she says. Yeah. Also in the little Earthquake songbook about Crucify. Right. Now four tracks in, there's no going back. Like, no resisting. Is, yeah gonna suck you in one way or another Mm. it would be interesting to know exactly and precisely when each song i don't mean time when it was written but i mean like in in what order these songs came yeah and i know she's got pieces of songs circling at all times and maybe a song takes several years while another song comes out fully formed but when the song was completed in her mind when it took its final shape in her mind and then she moved on. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this one's done. Check mark. Let's work on this one. Mm-hmm. Or let's write another song. Mm-hmm. I would love to know the chronology of this album. Me too. And even when we talked about the possibility of maybe kind of noodling around with Asylum all these years could have potentially turned into a pretty good year later mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not. But did that happen in this case when she was working on one song? And she's talked about this before, how sometimes they arrive in her words as kind of Siamese twins. Right. And she has to tease them apart, apart like right. what songs were related mm-hmm. as she was writing Little Earthquakes or how that all yeah. evolved. I'm fascinated by the idea, too, that as you said, they arrive conjoined, that she can see, okay, this is where that belongs to another song, like where she can sort of excise the part that doesn't belong there mm-hmm. and put like you never you, you don't know what if the bridge for silent all these years came with a bridge to precious things and they obviously don't belong in the same melodic structure how diligently she's working if that's how they come to her to put them in separate songs and build around them exciting it is it's very exciting <laughs> i love watching artists work or hearing about the process and also talking in depth about things we'll never get answers to <laughs> Yes. Um, you want to read this quote from Hot Press 1992? I love a hot it? press. If I'm going to have too. a press, it better be hot. I was always the girl who had friends, but did boys like me? Not the boys I liked. They'd say, she's nice and she plays really good piano, but she's also Sandy Lumen's friend. Can we get her number? I hadn't blossomed, so I was seen as a rather nondescript nice girl, I guess. Welcome to the world, Tori. Same. Still waiting to blossom. No kidding. At least she got out of that phase. I know. What's that like? <laughs> Little Earthquakes is all about celebration, celebrating the ability to laugh, weep, and scream, particularly if you have been silent for years. And so it's about celebrating sexuality in the widest sense, including the elements of revenge. As in Precious Things, where I say to the guy, so you can make me come, that doesn't make you Jesus. Just because I'm with a man and because I'm creaming for a man doesn't make him a master, doesn't even necessarily make him worthy of love, of my love. And now I realize, maybe for the first time in my life, that my capacity for love is incredibly deep, and that for me to give this to a man, he has to fully understand and respect what that means. Too few do. They're into pillaging, rummaging around, doing a little Viking stuff. But most women these days realize that's not enough, boys. And if some women don't, then I hope songs like Precious Things will help open their eyes and, just as importantly, help open the eyes of some men. So this song would be about celebrating sexuality in the widest sense, including the elements of revenge. So transgressive. I see that clearly in the song, too. Her wrestling with maybe not being woman enough Mm. in the beginning. I see a journey in the song, a a journey of sexuality in the song, Mm. for sure. I think that's 
a piece of it for sure, but I'm very intrigued by the idea that I have to believe that, again, this is kind of revolutionary stuff for the time. And the Tory is essentially saying, hey, guess what? A woman has sexual needs and feelings too that don't necessarily mean we're in love with you or we want yeah. to marry you. Yeah. So calm down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't have that much power like, over me. If you're quote unquote using me for sex, then I'm just as capable of doing the same to you. So you don't hold all the power in this situation. See, I loved how Tori kind of shook up the music scene. Saying these things in Hot Press Magazine in 1992, who else was doing that? Who else was speaking so frankly about... C.C. Peniston? <laughs> no, exactly. Not that they're producing the same kind of music and or even in the same realm. No, we're joking. That's not fair. Obviously, it's not yeah. fair. You're right. But still, even people in Tori's class or in her genre in alternative music weren't really speaking like this. And it's what appealed to me as a young... I think many people were, period. I think it appealed to me as a young kid, young gay kid growing up to be having those conversations or at least reading about them, you know? In case you wanted to know why I like Tori, that's it. <laughs> this is from Music 92 in Australia. Tori says, It took going so far away from being brave, she says. I became such a coward with self-expression. I wouldn't talk about anything that was really going on. I would cloak it in many ways. I'm not being hard on myself when I say that, because for so many of us, that's part of our education. And you have to think about what those messages mean, because the disease goes on and on from father to son, mother to daughter. The disease is repression of expression. Whether it's just, no, I never felt that way, or yeah, that did hurt me, or yeah, that did piss me off because you were really trying to control my life. But what really pissed me off more was I allowed it to happen. And then you have to go buy yourself an ice cream cone and say, so what? And have a giggle. And I have a lot of giggles on this record because you can't have real sadness without having fun too. Or the sadness doesn't mean anything. That's true. It's like without light, there's no dark. Mm -hmm. If you're always in sad, then you're, that's just, there's no real sad. You're always there, right? I get that quote. And she would always talk about having a giggle. I agree. Of course, you don't want your experience of life to be a flat line. You had to have to take it all in, the good and the bad, to put it simply. But let's go back to this idea of being a coward with self-expression. Mm -hmm. And we sort of know that that experience was the impetus for this album. But it's so hard to imagine Tori as someone who doesn't sing, speak, express Exactly kind of every moment yeah. of what she's feeling. Yeah, well, I think that was the journey to get to be the Tory that we know. Do you think that's an ongoing journey? Of course. For her yes. and everyone else? Yeah. I think going back to what you said earlier about how you turn everything inwards, I think yeah. that's what she means when she says, I became such a coward with self-expression. Instead of expressing that you hurt me, I just turned it inwards and I beat myself up about mm -hmm. it. Instead of expressing that you're saying you're really ugly, but man, you can play. Instead mm -hmm. of expressing like that's a dick thing to say, I turned it inwards and maybe if I dressed a little cuter, I could get your attention. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I feel like what you said is very closely aligned to what this quote yeah. from 1992. And I do think you can reach pivotal moments in your life of self-realization or confidence or where you, whatever you want to call it, where you do get to a point where you're able to express yourself or advocate on behalf of yourself. But sometimes there's still pushback or fallout. And maybe that can cause you to take a few steps back and question the degree to which it's safe to do that or sort of reassess with whom and in what situations 
it's safe to do that. So again, everything's a journey and a process, right? It's not like you reach the stunning realization and you're like, I'm self-actualized. I'm never going back. Right. You kind of need that reminder, like a crucify maybe, yeah. to reassert itself. What's interesting to me here in this quote is when she says, that's part of our education, how we message, like the messages that we give. She says, I would cloak it in many ways. I'm not being hard on myself when I say that because for so many of us, that's part of our education. And you have to think what those messages mean because the disease goes on and on from father to son, mother to daughter. That's really interesting. Basically, is and tell me if you disagree, but I think she's saying you learn how to express yourself from your parents or from the people that you're raised by. You see it and you model it. So if you are raised by someone who's really repressed, that message of being repressed continues on and passes down. Whereas like Tosh, for example, being raised by someone who's very open and very expressive with her emotions may have an easier time expressing those emotions later in the future. Of course. And I think we can't help but have our identities be so informed by the behavior that's modeled for us. And that doesn't mean that you're trapped or a victim or anything like that, but it takes a certain degree of will and awareness, I think, to maybe see a pattern that you're not comfortable with or that isn't working for you or that doesn't seem healthy to be able to say, oh, I see what's happening and I'm going to do something about it. But the long and the short of it is, yes, I think if you are in a family or a culture that doesn't talk about things, that's the way it is. And yeah. you just don't often know that there are any other options. So this is from the Rocket Seattle, May 1992. She says, I'm angry about a lot of things. I'm angry just because I'm a girl who plays acoustic piano. I don't have 180 dBs of volume behind what I say. So what I can't get out in the sound, I try to put in the content. She's angry. Madonna talked about when she released her sex book. Years later, she talked about that was her angry phase. and being really pissed off and expressing her sexuality in a very specific way that she was in control of. And I get being a woman in the music industry probably is very difficult with your image and this idea of sexuality that they put on top onto you. It's occurring to me that this album, not only did it come out of the idea that I'm going to make the music that I want to make and YKTR has bombed. And in order to save my soul, I have to make the music that I want to make. I already got that idea, but what's occurring to me now is how angry this record is that there's anger embedded in it. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it must've occurred to me at some point that it was, there are very angry moments on this record, especially in Precious Things. But I don't know why that this quote when she says, yeah, I'm angry about a lot of it's, things. It's, that's certainly something that I can see on this album, but I've certainly never considered it an angry album, a deeply intense personal emotional album Same. sure yeah and that's but why nothing quite so one-dimensional as angry. anger and that's why i've never understood why back in the day at least tori was lumped in a category of like angry man hating chicks. Yeah. feminists yeah which to me is so far off the mark that it doesn't even make any sense exactly it just proves that they're not listening right and yeah. As we've talked about on Silent All These Years in particular, I think what it goes back to is no one wants to hear what a woman has to say. Uh, right. It's mind-boggling to me that that is true and we can actually say that and it's not a horrible joke, but I think that's the reason. It's like if any woman is speaking her mind, it's like, well, what the what is she so upset about? Why is she so angry? It right. doesn't even particularly matter what it is that's being said. So I think that's what's happening here. And is there anger? Tori herself is saying yes, but it's a sophisticated anger. There's it nothing really obvious about it as there never really is with Tori's music. So that's why I have a hard time sort of even processing it as anger because it's woven into such a rich tapestry of other emotions, I guess. Well said. Thank you.
<laughs> you want to read this quote from the scene cleveland ohio's paper from july august 1992 it's an interesting thing when you know a few billies and they all think it's them but uh -huh. i'll never tell oh man she's carly simoning us <laughs> she's gonna auction off the rights which billy was it about zane shakespeare let him guess bill of shakespeare <laughs> When I'm being so personal in my songs, it's like I feel I have to spill the beans and yet have some anonymity with it, which is a very fine line to walk. But there has to be some of that for myself. There's some things that people have no idea about, and it's best that way. I say, just enough. Let your imagination do the rest. This album became so intrinsically linked with my teenage experience that I have, I, I have such fondness for this album as part of my own personal growth. And I miss the times that the music was this intensely personal so much that she's saying all the billies in my life think it's them and i have to i have to hide it i have to have some anonymity because i'm being so raw i miss that time mm. i really really do so do you think there was a real billy or that billy is just such a you know a perfect name to choose to sort of embody all of those middle school crushes bullies whatever i think it was a real billy normally i would say like oh you know this is an amalgam of a bunch of different boys or an idea. But I think because of this quote, I think it's a real Billy. The same way it's a real Peggy. The same way it's a real Bobby. How about a quote from Upside Down? I, I would love one. <laughs> the fanzine? Only if it's issue four, though. I know. Same. Okay. Hit me. It's easy to walk around numb all the time. It's much more difficult to walk around with all your monsters because people are so judgmental on the different parts of their personality. This is a bad part. So they cut it out instead of hanging out with it. Like the part of us that can be very violent. We say, I hate this side. I hate this side of me. So we cut out that part of our personality. Well, it's going to come out in other ways in your life somehow. Some people become born-again Christians and start judging other people, telling them what they should and should not do. Then they go and pick it to keep women from getting into the clinics. You think that isn't your violent monster coming out in another way? And that's true. If you don't acknowledge something about yourself and you try to cut it out of you and not really acknowledge it or not really deal with it, it will come out in other ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then the mirror principle, of course, which is you hate in someone what you see in yourself. No question. And that is the crux of something like Owning Your Own Shadow, mm -hmm. the book that Tori mm -hmm. has oft referenced. Yes. So you want to move into production? Talking yeah, about the production of this I'm one? already there. Catch up. Oh. This is from Little Blue World fanzine, spring of 2004, and this is an interview with Rance Hosley speaking about the time when he and Tori lived together as roommates during the summer before Little Earthquakes was released. Do you think, think she was always late with the rent? <laughs> Do you think they were roommates, or was he like crashing on her couch? Probably that one. Yeah, probably. But it's okay. You're young, you're wild. I'd let her crash on my couch. Little Blue World asks Rance, what were you able to witness of her creative process? That's a good question. It is. And he says, a couple of times really stand out in my memory. One of them was when she was writing Precious Things. I was doing dishes in the kitchen and she was plunking about on the piano and all of a sudden there's that wonderful staccato attack on the piano that's the beginning of the song. I dropped the plate I was washing and I went tearing into the living room screaming, that is it! Bye, George! You've got it! It was and still is one of my favorite songs of hers, regardless of being there when she wrote it, because that riff is just so fucking perfect. Mm -hmm. He was there when it was born. He welcomed <laughs> that new Precious Things baby into the world, he screaming did. all the while. So that's it! Do you think he's the godfather of Precious Things? Yes. Isn't it interesting how that's his origin story, but in that clip we played earlier from Storyteller, she's like, my roommate listened to really raucous music. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay. Roommates have differing accounts of everything. Should we move on? 
Yeah. From Beat, Australia, July 1994. Anthony says, For Little Earthquakes, she brought in people like David Seegerson and Ian Stanley to produce many of the tracks and produced a few of them yourself with Eric. This time, you and Eric have produced the entire album yourself. Is producing yourself more satisfying and does it get better results for you? And Tori says... Well, they're both great people, Ian and David, but with Eric, there are no limitations. He's amazing about that. There's just no limitation. A lot of times, the producer's vision can get in the way. They're involved and they're creating with you, but they're also listening to me as a writer and where it needs to go from that point of view. I mean, Precious Things, as you can see, is totally different from anything that Ian or David produced. It had a rawness and a passion, just like God has. And Eric really helps support that side of me so that when I go into those places, he helps with the whole arrangement of the track so that they have that thunder and that passion. That's a good word for precious things. Thunder. Thunder. It's like, oh, you know a storm's coming. The moment that, like, crack, you're like, oh, it's going to rain. Even before then, when there's the ominous sort of low rumble. Yes. Oh, yes. You want to read this quote from Tori Amos in the studio by Jake Brown? from his interview with Eric Ross. For the drums heard on Little Earthquakes, Ross explains, Precious Things was a combination of programmed and live. For the programmed drums, we used mostly samples that I had made on an emulator too, and I also had a Roland drum module. I also had an Oberheim drum machine, which even at the time was beginning to be vintage. Most of the drum samples were ones I'd actually made with percussion instruments, odd sounds. Precious Things was fun. A more aggressive sort of experiment with breath percussion and different things I hadn't necessarily heard done in pop music before. For the live drums, it was a fairly standard drum setup where we used Newman 87 mics for overhead and room mics. Just a little bit about the recording process. I don't know that we have the quote and I don't even remember what it's from. But at one point, someone asked Tori about the rhythmic breathing in Precious Things, Uh that element, and how that sort of came about or Uh what the kernel for that idea was and she couldn't really give a straight answer and she kind of just said like oh you know sometimes you're in the studio someone has an idea for something and it becomes something i love that you can look at little earthquakes and precious things and girl and really start to develop a sense of what eric ross's style is and the way he says an aggressive sort of experiment with breath percussion which i hadn't really heard done in pop music before I really feel like a lot of these things came from his mind. I agree. And the darkness of it came from his mind. You see this wild stallion with long, curly hair. You just kind of get a sense of who he was. Yeah. So it makes sense that a lot of these things she couldn't answer with a straight answer Mm because maybe he had the idea late night while she was asleep and kind of because he's building the track alongside her. Tori was napping during the production of her own (laughs) album and he was wiping the sweat from his brow, turning knobs and... Coming up with all these incredible like, ideas. I've written some lyrics. You want to try these? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I love this idea of producing something with someone you're so intimately involved with and who you really get on a on all kinds of levels. Sounds like trouble to me. Yeah. This is from Philly's Interview, August 1994. The interviewer asks, do you still have your peach party dress like the one from Precious Things? And she says, yeah, I have a new one every week. You know what I mean. I gave the original to Poppy. Aren't you going to ask me who Poppy is? (laughs) The interviewer for interview goes on to say, do you consider yourself to be the Jimmy Page of the piano? And she says, yes, you know that. There is a level of I'm really tired of people considering the piano lightweight. I know I sing like the Little Mermaid and everything, but that doesn't mean I can't choose my words. I'm trying to take the things that I do, which are like the antecedent of hardcore. My voice and the piano create the substance. I think that's why some of the bad boys understand. The ones that are kind of living in the basement with the rats and stuff, they seem to get what I do more than the ones that pose it. 
Then the interviewer says, Your lyrics are sometimes passionately diverse, yet honest, while your piano playing can be beautifully melodic. Oh, where do you get all that from? Thank you. I believe as a writer, the subtext is really interesting. I like to sometimes have two different conversations going on. Musically, I'm telling you one part of the story, while lyrically, I'm telling you the other, so that you can put the pieces together. I think the songs have to be like journeys. The listener has to be discovering things also. It can't be preachy. I hate that kind of stuff. There doesn't have to be magic in it. I always felt that the great storytellers made you taste or know if the room were wood, or if it was adobe, or if there were sweet potatoes in the oven, or, you know, cherry pie. I really felt like as a songwriter, you have your phrasing, you have your rhythmic sense, you have your melodic sense, you have your own chord structure, and then you have your words. So you have all these things, and that's before you even get into the instrumentation and arrangement. That's part of my talent. I'm pretty ruthless with it. I try and not settle unless I feel I've taken it as far as it can go. Oh, wow. That's great. That's a good quote. Just talking about all the elements in the song that she's considering. The phrasing, the rhythmic sense, melodic sense, chord structure, words, instrumentation, arrangement. Jesus. I know. And, you know, we've often described Tori's music as sparse. And I think compared to a lot of music, it is, even though there's a lot going on. It's not super heavily produced by any means. And I'm taken back to, again, my piano teacher, hi, Meg Falk, back in the day, who listened to a lot of Tori because I made her. And a lot of that was under the pink and Boys for Pele stuff that was primarily piano, especially the stuff that I was sharing with her. And she was willing to say, even as someone with a trained ear, that even though this is so stripped down, each of these songs has a very unique identity and they don't sound alike to me at all, at all. which I think is an incredible accomplishment for anyone, but particularly when you're pretty much just working with piano and vocal. Like, that's crazy. It's so frustrating when people say all her music sounds like. It's like, do you Who says not that? Have, yeah, do you not have ears? Nobody says that. Are you kidding? Monsters. Monsters. Idiots. Happy people, people who don't who like hate to themselves. dive emotionally into I was going to say the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> people who only eat salad and hate themselves. Uh, David, give us another fanzine, will you? Are you ready for some really deep thoughts? I'm ready. I was born ready. There's something kind of amazing about him, despite what we've heard to the contrary. I hide a lot. I hide more than people have any idea that I do. My openness is my protection in a sense. You know if you're going to hide something, put it out in the middle of the room and nobody will see it. So the songs are where I can be honest. You don't really know what's going on. I tried to be straightforward and yet at the same time, I hide things for my own protection. If you want to hide something, put it out in the middle of the room and no one will see it. That's the truth. Yeah, and I mean, w one thing we could say about Tori's music is that it's kind of coded right? And mm -hmm. a lot of people say it doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So I think that's kind of what she's getting at yeah. here. Like to me, I'm it's... laying it all out there, but the language that I'm choosing kind of obscures right. it. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yes. That was from Really Deep Thoughts fanzine, issue nine, fall of 1995. So as she's ready to release Boys for Pele. From piece by piece, Tori says, I flirt with other people's songs sometimes. <gasps> heathen jezebel even if i hear it only one time there can be a flirtation going on where i say i can do this but i'm going to approach it in another way a couple of bands inspired my riff on precious things but my song is so different from theirs you can't necessarily make the connection i want to take a deep dive with this Same. not even necessarily on this episode because i don't think we have the bandwidth for it right. but at some point I would love to try to isolate a handful of songs that we think might be contenders for mm -hmm. pieces that inspired Precious Things. Yeah. I think that a lot of... Rance was listening to a lot of metal at that time and yeah. he was staying with her. Maybe. She specifically has said metal in other quotes. Right. Yeah. Maybe also the theme song from Halloween. Why not? Right. I'm throwing it in there. Why not? Might as well. From Audio Media, in October 2003, Mark Hawley talks about the mixing and remastering of the songs for Tales of a Librarian. You want to talk a little bit about the difference between... 
the Tales version and the album version? Yes. So the first thing that comes to mind is that, you know, extended low rumble grumble mm-hmm. at the beginning mm-hmm. is even more dramatic mm-hmm. and a little bit longer, mm-hmm. right? Yes. I think like most of the songs on Librarian, the vocals are bumped up higher in the mix, but they're also more dry. Like if there was any sort of processing or even a little reverb, it's been stripped away right. for some reason. That's kind of true of a lot of the ambiance of the song. Like even the whip crack is more dry is the only word I can come up with. It all just sounds, I don't know. Exposed. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. So Mark says, since I was grabbing them, meaning the original tapes, just for Tori to keep as much as anything, I was listening to the albums and it became clear that the Maltese had so much more potential than I'd ever realized. Holly was hooked while remaining respectful. When you open an old multi that hasn't been touched in 10 years, it's like that multi stinks of all the effort that everybody put into it. It's a really odd thing. Precious Things from Amos's 1992 album was obviously recorded onto two-inch analog tape. They weren't allowed to slave it to another one. There wasn't the budget or the time. So the way that the tracks were assembled was so organized. They'd comped them together and they were EQ'd so that if you put all the faders at zero, it kind of sounded something like the finished mix. So really, that's the first time the song went from analog tape to a digital remaster and like really when they were readying librarian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. All I'll say is, in my opinion, as we know, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. And when you're under the gun, you can do and produce really incredible things. And I'm not sure there's a lot of untapped potential in these songs. I'm not sure. You can always make different choices. But sometimes when you have too many tools at your disposal, that's not a good thing right and it can kind of cripple it's like the when song. you go into you know i remember going into blockbuster and not being able to pick a single movie because there's so many right like frankenhooker again i guess uh, <laughs> something i want to explore too just in, at least in a little quick conversation is the idea that you put something together with an intimate partner you put something together like this with an intimate partner i would never and then years later another intimate partner comes and adds their voice isn't that interesting it's a little troubling to me i'm not gonna lie and maybe she's really great at being able to separate the work from the passion behind the scenes but it's just an interesting thought Mm. this is from rolling stone december 18th 2009 tori says i got brought to my knees yet again we were on a trip eric ross and i and what had just happened was that little earthquakes the original 10 or 12 songs had been let's use this word loosely rejected that was the david Seegerson production now a lot of these songs made the record in the very beginning, but when it was turned in, I just don't think it was presented correctly, and I don't think they knew what I was doing. So once Doug Morris got involved and realized what it was, then we had a conversation. I'll never forget it. In Los Angeles. And he said to me, I think you need to write and record another track. I said, no, I'll do four. I can't do one because there's too much pressure for that one to be it. And so he agreed. And he agreed that I could pull the team in. And he let me be at home producing. I pulled in Eric Ross as a co-producer because we had made the demos together and we worked well together. We're sort of like spiritual brother and sister. Although we were together at the time, we're both married with children now. We were very much alike in that we're both keyboard players. After that conversation with Doug, which I thought was actually good news because I embraced it, saying, look, if they don't think it's ready, then it's not ready for whatever reason. We took a trip through the American West. We did Utah into the whole Colorado range. Then we came back down and made our way back. And it was in the Rocky Mountains that I came up with this riff. I wasn't near a piano when it came up. It had started building in my head. I think I had been forming it before we left because sometimes that happens. I'll have a two-word phrase or something like that. But everything came together when I got really ill in the Rockies. Just a fever. Came down with something. And I think layers were coming off my life. 
shields that I had built up in order to filter things. And as that started to get ripped away, these core parts of the self were getting discovered. I was seeing what my structure was made of. Great quote. Mm. Really interesting on how, on the production and how it came to be. And there's something about the Rocky Mountains for her. Always has been. Always has been. So it seems. So around the time that Tori released Gold Dust, she did a round of press and Pop Matters asked her, Precious Things has been reworked so many times over the years, and yet it is still so potent. How do you approach that song, so indigenous to the earthquakes, some 20 years later? And she responded, It seemed to me that we had to retain the energy that we had in 1992, but we had to infuse this energy in a different way. What orchestras can do with their dynamics is unbelievable, and they can get very powerful and make you feel as if Russians are coming over the ice in the distance, millions of them. Philly and I were talking and he said, this has to be Prokofiev, no question. And that's where we have to take it. During this process, Philly and I talk every day and then he goes off in his genius mind and checks back in. Then he makes a demo of it and we discuss it again. And if there are changes, there are changes. We thought precious things had to be included on Gold Dust if you were going to talk about 20 years. That song had to come, but it needed a complete wardrobe change. And yet the soul of her had to stay. So she had to have her soul and her intensity. One of the most, if not the most interesting reworkings on Gold Dust for sure, love it or hate it, right? But mm -hmm. this and flavor, I would say, are the most different yeah. from the studio recordings that we're all familiar with, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Everything else just seems kind of more fleshed out. Right. But this is totally different yeah. than a band arrangement, clearly. Yeah, so. obviously, yeah. You want to read this quote from NPR Online, same time period, same when she was doing the orchestra stuff? From NPR Online, 17th October, 2012, NPR says, You've written some of the most forthright and inspiring lyrics about female sexuality and about sexuality in general. Some of the songs on Gold Dust, Precious Things, for example, really get at the heart of a woman owning her own desire. Then there are beautiful erotic songs like Snow Cherries from France. I'm sorry, NPR. If that's erotica to you, then we <laughs> have that... bigger problems. Exactly. Your music always connects deeply to the female experience of the body. When we were younger, I think we thought a lot about how our work speaks back to patriarchal power, and we still do. But I wonder how your sense of the erotic has changed over the years. And Tori says, I guess the last few years I have been opening up to the idea of romance, sexuality joining together, that there doesn't have to be a perversion in sexuality. Being a minister's daughter, ding, I was brought up with all the shame that surrounds eroticism. So the tip that the muses told me to open up to is the spiritual eroticism in your life. That's really changed the way that I see it. We as women sometimes take it to extremes, where it's either degradation or it's puritanical. Where do you have a balance of sensuality and romance and passion for yourself? I don't mean just for that guy or whomever your partner is, but it can be also for your art. It's about ideas. It's about expressing them. That's Tori if I've ever heard Tori. I mean, she all but says you got to marry those Marys. Yeah. So <laughs> gotta marry those we Marys, wanted girl. it so bad in this moment and she didn't give it to she us. She didn't give you the Mary, but she gave you the minister's daughter. Yeah, that's true. From Salon or Salon, on April 11th, 2015, right around the re-release of The Earthquakes, Elizabeth Gold says, Pretty much the baddest thing that a girl could sing in 1991 would have been the line from Precious Things, So You Can Make Me Come, That Doesn't Make You Jesus. Were you aware then of being revolutionary? And Tori says, I didn't think about, oh, what's going to happen if this gets out there? Because nothing had gotten out there yet. I hadn't had success. It was a very different position than saying, as on The Waitress or Under the Pink, I believe in peace, bitch, because I knew that that was going to go global. When I was coming up with Little Earthquakes, there were things that I needed to say. As an artist, you only get that time once before anybody has heard or seen your work. That's great. And I think that it's because this was her debut album that it's so raw 
that it is exactly what it became. If it had been her second, you can't be this raw on your second album. Obviously, by the time she did Under the Pink, Little Earthquakes had gone platinum, so she knew people were going to hear it. She oh, knew yeah. People- yeah. When she was hunched over her journal, scribbling, I believe, in Peace Bitch, she was cackling to herself, just waiting for that bomb to be detonated into the They're world. I love this. Matched only by, but girls, I bring home the bacon. <laughs> um, should we get into the line by line? Oh, Finally. My goodness, yes. Let's do it. So I run faster. These emotions that I've been trying to outrun all this time, all these years. Whatever I've been running away from, hiding from myself. Yeah. Yeah. Everything I didn't want to feel or acknowledge. I ran faster trying to get away from this thought or this experience caught up with me. What do you think she means? What was she being loyal to? And what was she loyal to instead? Do you think this is in reference to the music? Yes, my loyalty to myself and to my art and to my music turned in a direction not necessarily healthy or not anything that I've been pursuing. Well, that's interesting. I do now, and I love that. I've been denying all of these things and not being true to myself until it was all kind of stripped away from me, and now I have no choice but to confront it head on. Yes. Yeah. Like my Which the loyalty's turning reminds her of a time that something else turned, right? So I think that maybe is a little bit of a metaphor. Or maybe it's not. Maybe there was an incident on the schoolyard or playground where she's running after a boy, chasing a boy. Yeah, and that's how I've always seen it, that those two things are kind of woven together. Yeah. You think that actually happened? Or? I, I kind of do. It doesn't really matter. But I like the idea of that very little young that Tory. snapshot of mm-hmm. a moment from her childhood like that, that we all kind of have being a part of this story. Yeah. It's important for me to think that that happened. I agree with you. I believe that that's a picture from a previous time that actually happened. And I think it's important for me to believe that that happened in order to weave this song together. It's like she's starting as an adult and still years after her childhood is still making some of the same mistakes. Here I am in this moment. It's like a quick flashback to childhood. So I think it's important for me to believe that that experience happened because she's back there in that moment again, which obviously had such an impact for her to like be there immediately, you know? Mm-hmm. Running after Billy. And running after Billy. We've already kind of talked about whether or not Billy? Billy was a literal person and if his name was Billy. We both kind of agreed that we think it probably was, but it doesn't really matter. And that maybe it's kind of an amalgamation of these people. But I think Tori herself has acknowledged her need for approval from people in general, but specifically from men. And she talked about being attracted to men who weren't interested in her, and I think we all identify with that more I've than we never would had care that experience. to admit. Well, I will speak for myself. <laughs> so I feel like that's part of what's happening here, too. There's kind of this literal level of running after a boy on the playground, but maybe always that feeling of chasing after something that isn't chasing you back. Mm, always chasing something that's not chasing you back or yeah. that doesn't want to be caught by you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Running after the rain. You can't run after the rain. That's something you physically can't catch. It's not something you can chase. Well, that's interesting because, again, I'm, <laughs> I'm going way more literal with this song. I guess I always have been. I'm picturing after the rain, meaning it has recently rained. And I'm on a oh. field or something that's wet. 
and I've slipped and twisted my ankle because... I think maybe you're thinking that because of the After the Rain bootleg. Maybe. Interesting. I've <laughs> never in my entire life... You have life no idea how many beliefs of mine have been informed by titles like <laughs> Rhapsody in Pink, Swapping Tongues, and Tori and Her Mask. <laughs> I've never in my life thought of that line in that particular way. I've always thought it was a metaphor running after the rain, like running after Billy, running after the rain, like mm-hmm. something you're never going to catch. Something I'm sure that you're is, right. It, yeah. Uh, it, maybe I'm not. Maybe it's running after the rain. Rain, once it falls, brings a fresh new perspective, right? And she's still running. Mm-hmm. It could, I, that's really interesting. I love when things like that pop up, just different ways of hearing a line. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about this title or this phrase, precious things. Yeah. What does that mean? Is there a little bit of sarcasm there? Literal precious things would be things that you hold dear, that maybe right. you take care of lock away in a safe place. Right. But I have to believe she's sort of describing all of these painful experiences detailed in these these songs as precious things. So mm-hmm. what does that mean? I see what you're saying. Like if something's precious to you, if it's one of your precious things, you'd want to hold on to it and keep it safe. Mm-hmm. But she's asking to have her precious things washed away and let them bleed. Mm-hmm. But I think that these precious things, what I've always thought, and maybe I'm wrong, but this is just the way I've interpreted it, that these experiences, these moments, these precious things, Things, precious things being things that she's held on to, but not the positive things. Let them out, let them go. Cleanse myself from these things I've held so these negative things I've held so tightly onto. So I guess, yeah, maybe it is a little sarcastic, the title, precious things, but still, like she's built her foundation, maybe her nucleus or her center, her core is just these horrible things people have said to her and the way she feels about herself and the voice inside your head that is always telling you bad things about yourself. That's what she's trying to wash away. Mm. And that's what she's held on to for so long. So it's got to be her most precious thing, right? I agree with all of that. And to me, just the way she says precious, especially at the end with that repeated precious, precious, there's almost, again, I'll say sarcastic lip snarl. Like, do I mean precious or kind of some of the most awful things mm-hmm. that have ever happened to me? Mm-hmm. Or do I mean both? And for exactly the reason you said, these are things that I've always held very privately mm-hmm. that have informed who I am for better or worse. Yeah. They're things that I kind of still revisit more often than is probably healthy. Well, yeah. <laughs> and now it's time for me to sort of let them go or at least process them and look at them more directly through this song or this process. And your most precious things are locked away in some kind of hope chest or they're locked away in some kind of box that no one really ever gets to look at or locked away inside of you that no one gets to see these things. So yeah, they're precious mm-hmm. because I won't let them go. Yeah, and we've talked a lot, or she has, about Little Earthquakes being diary form. And this, maybe more so than any other song, gives me that feeling of being handed the key. Mm. And opening someone's diary and reading their most raw, unfiltered thoughts. And this isn't as poetic, maybe, as some of the other songs on this album, which isn't to say that it's clumsy or anything like that, but it is more direct and raw than a lot of the other songs. There's no shrouding things, yeah. Mm You think she means, I want to be free of them? I do. And let them bleed is interesting because I think there's some yearning for healing here. So bleeding, I don't know, this is maybe a reach, but brings to mind like leeching or just sort of getting all of the poison out of you. Yeah. But also maybe sort of wanting these experiences or the people involved to experience the same amount of pain that you feel you have 
at their hands. So like now it's your turn to bleed. Mm-hmm. I love that you said leeching. Like I, that is so clear. Like you've got to be bled to get yeah. this stuff out. Mm-hmm. And also let them bleed to me implies physical pain of some kind. Like I can see her with the razor blade or with the piece of glass, like trying to ease that kind of pain. Yeah. I kind of jokingly, but not really at the top of the episode made reference to exorcism. Yeah. And that was primarily preparing us for the live section. But I think that's really what this song is. It's getting, I have to get all of this out of me yes. one way or the other. So. Then it can break its hold on me. Mm-hmm. Like I want it to be done controlling me. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it's really a hard task. I mean, this is neither here nor there, but it's a daily reprogramming to be a positive person and to think positively about yourself. And that's so unfortunate that you brainwash yourself your whole life to think these things or to hear other people's thoughts on you and your their opinions of you and you absorb them. That it takes active, relentless reprogramming to be positive about yourself that's where i'm at like trying to get there but it's you've got to remember it daily it's work that you do some of this is kind of cliche self-help stuff at this point but that doesn't make it any less true is that for a lot of us when you bring awareness to it or maybe i should just speak for myself there's a constantly playing loop tape of negative self-thought that you're kind of comfortable with and has been with you for so long that that's your default Mm -hmm. where you sort of are in that endless cycle of highlighting all your flaws or why am I like this or why did I do that? And to sort of break yourself out of that and change that pattern takes will, Yeah, I think. You said you're really an ugly girl But I like the way you play So again, we have a snapshot of a moment not necessarily with Billy. Do you have you always heard it as Billy? No. Or yeah, it's an older guy. Mm-hmm. We're later, mm-hmm. right? We've gone through yeah. a few years. Maybe we're at the Peabody now. Yeah. Or even in high school, mm-hmm. where she's pursuing boys and really wanting to get a boyfriend. You know, we're all teenager. I think we're at the teenager years, and the guy tells her she's ugly, but she sure can play. Mm-hmm. And she says it right there, and I died. Like how I can feel it people like saying something negative to you to your face how that like yeah it's humiliating yeah Humil- especially at that age that's why i feel like such a teenager in this line or why she's such a teenager in this line is because I- and i died it's just the humiliation of that as you're growing yeah. up yeah but you're so disempowered that you're still grateful for like whatever backhanded compliment was tacked on to the end of that. Like, oh, but you like the way I play. Thank, Thank you. you. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't even defend myself. This is such a, there's so much. This is such a rich verse. That phrase is itself, I don't want to keep saying iconic, but in her body of work, I feel like this is such a clear image and such a just clear, perfect visual imagery. And you're there and you're feeling it. And it's, Ah, that's Tori Amos, man. Can you believe that, she asks. And there's something in that phrase. She's talking directly to the listener. Has that happened ever before? Where she goes like Carrie Bradshaw season one and almost turn towards the camera. And it's like, can you believe that? Sick. But not with that tone, obviously. (laughs) I find it hard to marry this song with that tone you just used. (laughs) 
<laughs> I couldn't help but wonder what he meant by calling me ugly. It just feels so personal, and it feels like she's placed you there. Like, you are her confidant now, and there's something so powerful in that relationship. You're so right, and I don't think she's ever addressed the listener directly, and most people don't, I don't think. Very interesting and powerful, yeah. Yeah. Again, that feels like you've been brought into her inner world, where she's not only revealing all these secrets, but telling them directly to you. To you, yeah, specifically you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something really powerful about that. There's an interview, this is from a phone interview with J.S. Jacobs on October 21st, 1992, And it's about this line. Tori says, it's like when you have honey and garlic together, when you have different spices that you wouldn't normally put together. They don't always work, but when they do work, they really work. It's the subtext. We're not one-dimensional people. We can hate something and at the same time be turned on. We can really be hurt by somebody and want to hit them, but if they would give us a hug, we would just hug them back. There are so many things that go on. At the end of the day, most of us don't think we are enough. We do just want to be accepted. And that was when they asked her specifically about that line. Um, It's true. I don't necessarily want to get into a dialogue about abusive relationships, but... Or like codependent relationships? Or codependent relationships or the idea Mm -hmm. of how someone who hurts you so badly, how you need their approval in a way or their affection... But that, I think, is embedded in the heart of this line and thus in the heart of the song. What do you think? I think so. And I think for a lot of us, that is more typical of childhood, perhaps. Not that that isn't a pattern that continues to be a challenge later in life. But I go back to the way I feel about many of these songs on this album is that it's very deeply rooted in childhood and need for approval and acknowledgement. So, Mm -hmm. And she says, most of us don't think we are enough. We do just want to be accepted. Mm -hmm. And to think that Tori, at this point in her life, what is she, 28? Having these frank conversations, these open conversations with journalists about things that are, I think, really still hard to talk about. And I'm in my 30s. I also want to, I'm curious what you think. She had just, you know, she had tried to be someone else with the whole YKTR experience and many other things, probably. Do you think as she was writing this song, aware of the trap of wanting to be accepted, that she was also kind of on the brink of, oh, well, here I am really going to be authentic and I'm really going to put myself out there. And what if I do that and I'm still rejected or I feel like I'm not sort of seen for who I really am. Do you think that that was at all part of her process or that she sort of was preparing herself to take another emotional bungee jump? Because no matter what it is, relationship or otherwise, it's risky, so to speak. You can potentially get very hurt to be vulnerable and put yourself out there and you might end up feeling rejected. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't think she was thinking that. I don't think she had ever taken an emotional bungee jump before this. So it was something new. As an artist? As an artist. Okay. I think maybe, I mean, Baltimore and Walking With You aren't songs that go deep into her psyche or what she's feeling, right? And then you get Why Can't Tori Read songs. Yeah. She'd never taken an emotional leap like this. I think. I'm, yes, I get that part. And maybe I'm just, <laughs> I'm aware of how I would feel in this moment. Right. But I can't, I have to imagine that she was feeling like, oh, well, I tried being someone else and that didn't work. But oh crap, what if I try being me and they don't like that either? And then what am I going to do? Yeah, I mean, of course there's the fear of like, well, but there's also, 
I believe her when she says like I had to write music for myself yeah. that even if no one would ever hear it at least I was present in my songs for sure but there was I mean we have that piece but sure, of course but there's, it's terrifying to think that, it, that you might get rejected well yeah and I mean there was a lot going on trying to mold this into a commercial album mm-hmm. so it, I mean that's true but there was also a lot of effort on her part and the part of a label backing her to make this into a product, for lack of a better word, that would be experienced by people. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just about her writing songs and putting them in a drawer. Like You're they right. were meant to be shared no matter what. Right. So. There's another quote from Vox, May 1994, about this line. And she says, I've never gotten a guy without the piano. It's almost like I became justified as a person when people heard me play. Before that, men would never talk with me or hang out with me. Anyway, moving on. Holding on to his picture, are we still talking about the same boy here, do you think? The one who called her ugly and said she can play and she continues to hold on to his picture and dress up every day? I think so. I think that's what she's saying. The people who hurt you that you just need the affection from mm-hmm. and someone can hurt you, but you're still looking to them. Yeah. You have to somehow convince them of something. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I want to smash the face I see the anger, obviously. Mm -hmm. This is a part of the album where the anger is clear. And I'm so grateful that you use the word direct because that to me is what makes this the heart of the album because it is, I think, the most direct song. When dealing with that anger, when dealing with the actual emotions, she's not hiding anything here. She's going for it. Mm -hmm. Those Christian boys. Why those boys? Why the Christian boys? Just because that's who she's grown up with and those are the boys that she's had access to, had feelings for? Or is it because church boys are a different breed in terms of how they treat girls? I kind of think all of the above. And, you know, certainly the way Tori was raised, I have to imagine, I'm thinking of like all the boys in like the church youth group and the boys in her dad's church or whoever that she was probably primarily around. Those were the boys in her social sphere. But also to her, she was probably being groomed to feel like that was what one should aspire to is Mm -hmm. like pairing up with one of these nice christian boys Mm. so thereby smashing their faces is smashing the illusion or the glass you think because honestly when i hear i want to smash the faces i don't think of her punching them i think of her smashing glass in some way it's just the word i guess it's the word choice smashing which means something different now yeah that of course brings to mind like something in a picture frame or something behind glass that's just out of your reach something that is not attainable to me something Mm -hmm. that i have my eye on but is not looking back at me at all and i'm just wanting to be noticed or seen by one of these boys that everyone has sort of placed on a pedestal and they won't give me the time of day and like i need their approval but at the same time i just want to kill them yeah so you can make me calm it doesn't make you Would you consider this the central line on the album? No. You wouldn't? Certainly not. You wouldn't consider this the quintessential Tory anthem? Has there ever been a line that's gotten more response from the audience? No. 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 There hasn't. So this, I think, is the one that resonates the most. And you wouldn't agree? Not for you necessarily or specifically, but in general. I don't even know that it necessarily resonates the most with the audience, but I think we've talked here and there about whether or not Tori is consciously courting controversy. 
And this is, you can't tell me that someone writing this even now would say, oh, that's just the way I was feeling. That's, there's nothing controversial about this statement. One has to know that that is going to spark a reaction of some kind. And I think the reaction from the audience, those are her people, people who have shown up for her. There's just something about, it seems like so raw and kind of dirty. And she said the word come and people are just going to cheer and no matter what. Like, not that people are like, yes, that's how I feel too. I think it's an empowering line. I think it's very, I mean, you're right. I don't, I don't, I take issue with the term courting controversy. I feel like she wrote this and that was how she was feeling. And yes, she understood it would probably get a reaction, but it was central to the theme or the heart of the song. So she couldn't take the line out of the song, even if it would cause controversy. I don't think she's necessarily courting it. That's the phrase that I take issue with. However, the people that show up at the shows and the hurt, you know, they are her people. And I think the reason we cheer on that line is because it is, it feels empowering. Yeah, you can bring me pleasure, but that doesn't mean that you own me or that doesn't mean, you know, I keep your picture upon my wall. It doesn't mean you mean that much to me. I get all of it, that, but I, for me, this is not the most pivotal line of the album. I wouldn't say the and, pivotal. You're right. But I, I was I going back to the audience reaction. And I do think the loudest people in any audience are the ones that sit right whatever, next to me, unfortunately. Well, yeah, that Somehow too. it always works but out that way. Anytime, like she says, fuck, and people lose their minds. Like, oh my God, we love. For, like, so certainly when she says, oh, you can make me come, they're going to lose their goddamn minds. I don't think they're in, the, I don't think that in the moment they're necessarily having. I get it. Like, a, yeah. a yes, an emotionally resonant experience. Where they're like, yes, that's how I feel yeah, too. Okay, fine. The same as when she flips off the audience during Father Lucifer right. and everyone loses their minds. It's like, don't flip me off, girl. I didn't do nothing to you. But yes. Okay. But I don't think it's the most pivotal line on the album, certainly. And I think that there's more profound thoughts on the album. But for me, this is the turning point in the song or the point of no return almost. As we approach the bridge coming up, I think this is... There's no going back once you've said this to a man or to yourself about men. Right. I want to go back to kind of the the conversation we were having in the quote section where this to me is an empowering statement in so much as it's saying, I as a woman am just as capable of enjoying sex as you are. And just because I'm interested in that with you doesn't mean you hold any kind of power over me. Right. Or just because you have the penis (laughs) doesn't mean anything. So kind of get over yourself. So that part, of course, Mm -hmm. I get. So now we have another snapshot. Do you still have the peach party dress? What kind of ridiculous question is that? Anyway. So now we have another snapshot of a different time. Yeah. So she's at prom. Does it feel like prom to you? Something like that. Homecoming. A cotillion. A a dance where she's not being asked to dance, where she's kind of like standing in the background. Certainly. Being Cindy Lumen's friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Or it was some stuck-up girl's birthday party, and she was only invited because their moms were friends. Yeah. <laughs> no one cared. No one cared to tell me where pretty girls are. So it implies that all the girls have gone off to, you know, snuck into the bathroom to go smoke cigarettes. But also easy there, Tori. Are you asking the other girls, where are the pretty ones? You guys aren't it. <laughs> That's a good point. Never thought of that. (laughs) But it implies that the girls went off somewhere 
to get away from her almost, or they went to go do something cool. Right. Or of course, everything's just, very clicky. We're the popular kids. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. And just gives you that sense of being an outsider, that she's an outsider. And because you're her confidant in the song, you she's actively placed you personally in the song. Mm. You can identify with your friend that feels like an outsider. You know, you feel like an outsider. And here you are connecting, you and Tori Amos. I don't know. There's something so important about this song on this album. In our relationship with Tori as people who listen to the music and mm-hmm. go to the shows. No one did. No one cared to tell me. Why didn't they tell her where the pretty girls are? Because she wasn't pretty? It's just that feeling of being an outsider and you're not going to be part of this cool group, this popular group, no matter what. So don't even try. So we received a voicemail about this line, David, which I'd like to play for you now. Hey guys, this is Jake. I'm calling about Precious Things. This is one of my favorite Tori songs. And one thing that's always struck me about this song is the way she says demigods in the bridge. She says, demigods, which sounds like she's saying, my God. I don't know. There's something about the way she says that that I've just always loved. And it's made the song kind of special for me, especially the live version on To Be Missing Back. It's just absolutely incredible. So anyway, if you guys could touch on that in the episode, that would be amazing. Thanks. Bye. Demigods. I know it's pronounced demigods, but I've never considered that she radically changes the pronunciation demi demi gods uh-huh have you ever heard like it's pronounced m- like demi more yeah well demi more demi more demi gods <laughs> see you really can't rely on tori when it comes to pronunciation i think she's teaching us this in the fourth track of her first album yeah yeah what do you think about her pronunciation of demi gods we get demeter and demi gods do you think they're related? Probably. But do you think there's anything there as far as... Do I think there's any significance to her choice? Not really. It does kind of sound like if you're not really listening or if you're like, just kind of catch it, it sounds like, my God, to my God. I get it. I have to believe that this is a very obvious and direct reference to Trent and the Absolutely. band Nine Inch Nails, regardless of whether or not they had met. At this point, she's often talked about having respect for him and his music, and I think the feeling was mutual, for sure. So I think this is a way of including a nod to him, even if they'd never met, which is kind of how she and Neil became friends, too. Mm-hmm. I think she'd taken a liking to his work and included him in a few lyrics, and they actually became friends, IRL. What I like, though, is that these Nine Inch Nails that she's singing about, to me, are Nine Inch Fingernails. Oh, yeah. And the Nine Inch Nails that Trent Reznor refers to are crucifixion nails. Agreed. So I love already that she's, yes, she's referencing him, but she's flipping it, Mm -hmm. right? But she also manages to still include a religious reference of some kind. Yeah. So I feel like she's switching it in a way that she's so good at that she shows again later with Smells Like Teen Spirit. Like she flips the perspective. And I love love that these nails become fingernails and you can see Mm -hmm. they're like... Awful girls. Yes, yeah, monsters. Mean girls. That's what they are. <laughs> I've always seen tucked inside the heart of every nice girl. It's what's really going on inside beneath the surface. And, you know, the sort of sheen of the popular or accepted people 
who are really terrible predatory monsters on the inside. They have like their little fascist panties tucked behind their hearts where you can't necessarily see them. So you're saying every nice girl has little fascist panties tucked in her heart? Maybe not every nice girl. The ones that uh, I consider those the same as the pretty girls. Oh, I see. Like yeah. nice, like sweet girls. Right. We're the sweet girls. Exactly. We're the nice girls. Yes. Not like true girls. Right. I love that. Mm -hmm. uh, that to me is probably accurate and that's probably exactly what it is. You're such a nice girl. You're such a nice girl, David. And <laughs> I think you know what I mean by that. <laughs> Bitch. And then we have this exorcism for the rest of the song. Yeah. That's it. Those are all the lyrics. And the capital lyrics for this round of Ellie Poetry. Please say come, please say come. Remember what we've been doing on this album cycle. So we've been taking all the capital words from the lyric sheet and you can use them sort of like refrigerator magnet poetry. Send us a poem on our Twitter at songsoftoryamus.com and hashtag with the hashtag Ellie Poetry and you may win a Toriamus collectible. So not a lot of people have been doing it. So the chances of you winning are very, very high. And also the two winners from Crucify and Girl have not gotten back to us with their addresses. So get back to us, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> we have Tori and Miss Collectibles just dying to get out of this house. Um, okay, so would you like the capital oh, words? Oh, I found some good stuff, by the way, when I was moving, or I'm in the process of moving. I corralled some stuff that might make nice giveaways. Oh, That's all I'm going to say, but I love it. maybe some of you can be bothered to submit something. <laughs> <laughs> so submit a poem, a refrigerator magnet poem, and the following capital words must be included in your poem. And those words are Billy, boys, and nine inch. Ooh, these are going to be some racy poems. Should I make one up right here in the moment? Dear Billy, you may be only nine inches away. I can still feel your boys. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be here all week and longer to get through this catalog. Are you ready? For Le Poetry? For Le Poetry winners? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. These are the poems that were submitted for the Silent All These Years episode, and you have to pick a winner. So I'm going to read the poem to you, and we're going to pick a winner live on the air. Well, to tape. You ready? I'm all set. Okay. Number I'm going one. going to the zone. Hang on. Sorry. Closing my eyes. I'm getting there. All right. Give it to me. Number one. Mother, may I go? Nothing here is easy. Son, you should bring your dog. <laughs> That's the winner, right? Clearly. Well, let's see. Well, that's the only entry. Oh, okay. Done. Winner. Chrissy Olson, you've done it again. Chrissy Olson. Just keep playing this and you'll have all our collectibles. <laughs> Send us an email with your address and I'll ship off the two that you've won so far of the three. Congratulations. And you guys really, come on. Everybody, give Chrissy a run for her money. This is a fun assignment, too. I mean, she's really good at this poetry thing, but make her work for it. <laughs> I want to smash the face and those beautiful boys. Boys, so you can make me come Just because I'm a minister's daughter, I'm not the only one that has confusion about what what is the place of lust, passion? Where does that fit in with love? I mean, why there's a lot going in there and you can be really divided with yourself. I always talk about the prostitute and the virgin sitting and having spaghetti together, sharing a plate. And once they started to do that, we could... My head wasn't knocking around so much all the time. 
the most recognizable riff in Tori's entire body of work. Top three, anyway. Those low rumbles. It sounds to me like the keyboard sound that Yanta has chosen. He really is trying to sort of emulate the sound of the album track. And we talked about Tori being credited as playing both electric and acoustic piano. And I will say that the piano on this song, particularly during this section before the rest of the band kicks in, does sound artificial to me. So you think this is the electric Not unlike what she played at that first Montreux appearance. So I'm wondering if there was a decision to have her play an electric piano, even though they clearly had acoustic pianos at their disposal. I think maybe if they were recording acoustic piano in a studio of some kind and they were being paid you know they're paying for it and they didn't have all the time in the world maybe they picked some stuff up on electric piano back at the apartment back in eric's studio so that's maybe why that's acoustic and electric that riff though is you're right iconic (laughs) But it's, it makes me feel like I'm running. It makes me feel my heart starts racing. Like I'm never, I'm just one step behind. This is badass. <laughs> like, this is a badass piano song. Stop listening to it again with the vocal stripped away she is playing her heart out and it seems challenging for me if not the notes themselves but just physically it must be demanding and you know obviously that's the case every time she plays it live at this point for her I'm sure she can just sort of lean into it but still there's a, a lot happening here and to maintain that driving rhythm and I'm Always curious if she recorded herself to a click track or something to keep the rhythm consistent so that when the other instruments came in, they could play along. I think knowing how she plays live, I don't think she would record to a click track. Mm. I think she just has that natural rhythm and it doesn't waver. This is such a moment here, and it really sounds to me like broken glass. We yes. have the reference to smashing the faces, and in that moment, I can just see all These the shards are of like glass falling, falling. From, Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And now she's brought it down an octave.
man. Low notes. Can't yeah. get enough of it. And the abruptness with which it stops is so important. Do you think in that abruptness, do you think she lets it go? Do you think she takes that giant pair of scissors and cuts them off? Or has she exercised them? Are they gone? Have they washed away? Have they broken? They're like gone. It's just like the music stops, it's done. So it feels like almost like when you're rushing towards a cliff and then it's black. Yeah. You know, or you're like falling, you've jumped off a building and you're falling, you're falling, and then nothing. So true. Or almost like snapping out of a nightmare, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're yeah, sitting you're both like, up yeah, right exactly. in bed at that moment. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So do we think that the song worked? Do, we... <laughs> <laughs> do you think she's... Did it work? Did are she... they still here? <laughs> do you think those precious things are still here? <laughs> what was that? Precious. <laughs> um... Yanta, you can't get rid of him forever. Come on. Who are we kidding? You can't. That's for sure. You got to constantly work on it. And maybe that's why she plays it all the time. But also because it's a banger and a crowd pleaser. We joke about it a lot, but this might be the ultimate banger. This is the ultimate banger. Yeah, as far as Tory songs go, Bangers for sure. Bangers and Smash, for sure. Mm. Bangers and Smash. Mm -hmm. Of course, that instrumental was from Yanta's YouTube page. That was Yanta. You can support Yanta on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Yanta and support him there. He's a very kind, talented gentleman who does incredibly, as you heard, does incredible instrumental covers with transcriptions of Tori Miss songs. So support him on Patreon. Again, that's patreon.com slash Yanta. They really are incredible. Each and every one is beautiful and they have helped me connect or reconnect with songs that I love for a long time in different ways or even gain totally new appreciation for songs that weren't necessarily that close to me. Um, which is quite an accomplishment. So, Like I always say, download it, put it on your phone, and use it as classic karaoke versions of Tori Amos songs. Just say, no, 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 I don't need the lyrics. I got this. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen, with Liz Knickerbocker. Tori Amos, Little Earthquakes, Rolling Stone, Four Stars. Newcomer Tori Amos' songs are smart, melodic, and dramatic. The deeper you listen, the hotter they get. Amos shares common ground with art folk songstresses like Kate Bush and Jane Sibri, but while they often deal in abstruse poetic terms, Amos has a tendency to cut to the quick, to face facts, to call a rape a rape. Little Earthquakes is an often pretty, subtly progressive song cycle that reflects darkly on sexual alienation and personal struggles. From the outset, all is not roses. In the opening tune, Crucify, Amos sings, I've been looking for a savior in these dirty streets, looking for a savior in between these dirty sheets. The difficulty of asserting one's own voice is the subject of Sinaloa's years. Rage often bubbles below the sensuous surface. On the subject of sex, Amos is ambivalent and ultimately poignant. By the time the refrain in the closing title comes around, give me life, give me pain, give me myself again, we feel as though we've been through some peculiar therapy session, half cleansed and half stirred. That artful paradox is part of what makes Little Earthquakes a gripping debut. Here's a cover of Precious Things by Coma Black.
guys. This is Alexander Lidget Small. I love Precious Things because it is the quintessential Tory song. This is Peter Zimmerman, and I love Precious Things because it is everything I want in a transcendental warrior goddess Tory moment. This is Danica, and I love Precious Things because demon Tory and cross grabbing. This is John Arsler. I love Precious Things because the first time I heard her say, you can make me come that doesn't make you Jesus, is when I knew that she was a gay icon. Hey guys, Paul right here. I love Precious Things because it's the ultimate example of the band transforming a Tory classic into something completely new, and I think, frankly, even better. Hi, this is Michael Morrison, and I love Precious Things because it is a perfect example of Tori's virtuosity in making the piano sound completely unexpected. And years later, it's still exciting, it's still fresh. I don't think I've ever hit the skip button. It's just a perfect song. Hi, this is Douglas. I love Precious Things because it's like an amazing alarm clock for the soul. There's nothing like it in concert. It just excites you, excites everybody. It's just such a great song. Hi, my name is Dor Dawson, and I love Precious Things because I think it's the ultimate expression of the high stakes of being a teenage girl. And it's a really beautiful song about permission to be angry about those high stakes. And I love how much the crowd really gets into it, especially when she says naughty words. Hi guys, this is Shay, and I love Precious Things for so many reasons. Precious Things has actually held a lot of firsts for me. It was my first favorite Tori song. It was the first time I felt emotionally connected to Tori. It was my second time seeing her. It was 1996, and she got to the wash me clean daddy part and brought up so many emotions and feelings inside my young little heart that I didn't even know existed or were there until that moment. Um, I could go on forever, but I do love precious things, period. Thanks. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here in a locked, secure location with Liz Knickerbocker. Say hello to the people. Hello. Introduce yourself with your first Tori Amos-inspired login and your show count. My first Tori-inspired login. I don't know what that means. You've never logged in with a username inspired by a Tori Amos lyric? Oh, no. Like ATN Girl? I'm sorry, I haven't. Or Chocolate Cherry Zalamanda? Um, I have yet to create my first Tori Amos login. How many shows have you been to? How many Tori Amos shows have you been to? Oh, no, you're not going to like the answer to this. A lot? More than me? Probably not. How many? Zero. Zero? Zero. Zero. Liz, will you introduce yourself to the people with the names of the women that you put on your Women Changing Music in Music History bulletin board? This is all a setup because of my bulletin board. How dare you? Liz put a bulletin board together where we work, Women Changing Music. And who was on that music bulletin board? I picked a top 10 list of women through history starting with 300 BC. (laughs) Uh, And? Tori Amos? Uh, Tori Amos was not on the list. Uh, Not to say that she is not a significant woman of music history, uh, but she did not make the cut of my list for my top 10. I'm sorry to all the fans. Is that because you haven't seen her live yet? Probably. It's probably because I haven't seen her live yet. That's probably, yeah. Like once you see her live, like she would be the top. Right. Yeah. Obviously. Indubitably. 
So I'm going to play for you Precious Things, which is the episode that we're on. And this is, we've never done anything like this before. Are you excited? I'm so pumped. I'm pumped too. Like this is my pumped face. Yeah, it looks pretty pumped, right? <laughs> um, so I'm going to play you Precious Things and you're just going to comment as, as you listen for the first time. You've never heard the song before, right? Never. Ever, ever. Never, ever, ever. Fresh ears. But you study music. You are a musician yourself. You want to tell the people what you do? Yes, I am a musician. Um, I have played violin since I was seven years old. Mainly classical training uh, throughout my years. I went to college for that as well. But I've studied music therapy in college and more how to use music as a tool in a therapeutic sense. Um, I also do a little singer-songwriter thing, include kind of a folky blues genre and that's it. Liz is known to the community because she designed 50 or more sunset postcards that we used as giveaways if you had supported Nancy Shank's GoFundMe campaign. Liz Knickerbocker here, who we're talking to, she is actually the artist who created all of those postcards. So if you go to our Instagram, at uh, Songs of Tori Amos, you can see all those postcards there, and they're beautiful. Did you have fun doing that? It was a lot of fun. It was the first time I'd ever had like a commissioned art job, actually. I'm mostly watercolor for fun. Um, but it was it was still fun. <laughs> not to say that the commission was not fun. Work sucks. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it, and I actually impressed myself with how quick I was able to whip that many different sunsets out. And they were all pretty unique and pretty different, and you did them pretty quick. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to play Precious Things for Liz for the first time. You'll probably hear it in the background. Sorry to bore you. Here it is. Oh, my God, Liz. And you're going to hold the microphone, and you're just going to talk, and then we'll talk after. Okay. Say whatever comes to your mind as you listen to the song, mm-hmm. and then we'll talk after in more detail. Okay, okay here we go. Hold the microphone. Hold, hold the microphone. <laughs> So far, I'm digging the intro. I'm just going to vamp while Liz listens to the song. I mean, she looks a little shocked that it's so good. the drop that's true she does drop she does drop it like it's hot do 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 so just watching her expressions is very exciting she's really absorbing the music looking down just absorbing the majesty and the majesty super cool That's a professional saying that. This is her professional opinion that it is super cool, ladies and gentlemen. She's... I'm going to get more out of her. I'm just giving her a moment. I'm letting her absorb the song in her own way. Letting her listen to the changes. Letting her feel the changes. I'm just watching a Tory fan be born in front of my very eyes. This is very exciting. It's like... 
it's like National Geographic, like being in the wild, except for we're in a locked room at my work so that nobody will walk in on us and find out we're not working. But yeah, almost like National Geographic. What year did this song come out? 1992. Oh, wow. That's the year I was born. <laughs> Don't tell the people that. Does it sound dated to you? No, not at all. That's why I asked. Is because it's very current. Really? I think so. Oh, I love it. Yes. I think the people that are trying to sound different in today's pop music are sounding a lot like... Tori Amos. I think so. Yet she didn't make history? (laughs) This is an offline conversation. (laughs) No, that's being published. (laughs) Okay, I'm taking the microphone back. This is very, very exciting to watch someone listen to music. It's almost as exciting as watching someone sit and do nothing. But... The possibilities are exciting. I feel like I should have... I mean, she could come out on either side. If she's going to end up being a Tory fan, I I feel like I gotta have old printouts of the dent ready for her. I feel like, should I link her to the YouTube for sessions at West 54th? What? I don't know what my next step is. Oh, she... Her, like, lip curled. I mean, maybe she was emulating the, the words. I wish you would, I wish you would talk. <laughs> it's fine. Liz is a teacher. She prescribes to the idea that if you are talking and you're not listening, and I've heard her tell her class that. So I'm just filling space. I'm feeling really good about my ability to fill space. <laughs> and that's what I do. I just take up space. Oh God, this is not time for an existential crisis, I don't think. Okay, I'm gonna hand her back to my phone. Amazing. You liked it? I loved it, definitely Um, loved it. I like the beginning with the synth. Her use of synth, um, I think is what I would call current, you know, the way she builds up and the drop of the bass. Mm Uh, her vocal choice and the instrument choice, I thought, really reflected a lot of classic rock influence. Mm. I, I heard a little Led Zeppelin. I heard a little Heart. heard a little Queen. Are you serious? Yes. Yeah, I haven't told you anything about Tori <laughs> I have not told you anything about Tori Amos, right? Not at all. Okay. But I wouldn't be the least bit surprised to find out that those are her influences based on that song. Mm. Could you understand what she was saying? Here and there, I was honestly paying more attention to the musicality of the piece. Um, that is my first instinct when I listen to a song, and then I kind of go back and listen to it a couple times and get the feel for the lyrics. So no, I couldn't really tell what the song was about, but the overall vibe was very um, an ominous ambiance, mm. I guess I would say, with the, the vocal harmonies, mm. the deep man voices in the background, and uh, the, the different intervals that she used kind of create a very ominous feel. Like the time intervals, the time signature? Uh, not just the time signature, but like the uh, the chord choices, you know, the intervals, the minor choices, and the diff- it's a unique, she used harmony in a very unique way. 
How, how so? What would you describe as unique about it? Well, I guess I would compare it again to Queen. A lot of their, um, Brian May as the guitarist of Queen, he has a very uh, signature sound. You can kind of recognize a Queen harmony when you hear it. And I wouldn't call that a Queen harmony, but I would recognize that as a Tori Amos harmony with that same kind of level of um, almost like a signature. But to the whole layering and the synthesizers and then the guitar, it was clearly a very well-produced track with all of that. I would be curious to hear it live. To- Ooh, well, we can do that, um, but we don't have time. We're running out of time. I want to send you a live version from To Venus and Back. Thank you. That's her live album. Okay. I realize you don't know what that is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now I do. Would you go see a Tori Amos concert now that you've heard that song? Yes. You would? Yes, of course. Really? I love live music and she sounds very entertaining. She is very entertaining. She has one of the sickest followings in music. Oh, I'm sure of it. I've met your friends. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, Liz, thank you so much for being on our show. Say hello and goodbye to the people and let them know where they can follow you online if they wanted to see your artwork. Okay. Thank you very much for having me. It was very enjoyable. Look forward to learning more about Tori Amos. Hello and goodbye to the people. You can follow me at L-I-Z-K-N-I-C-K-E on Instagram. Liz Nicka. That's her. Thank you for doing the postcards and thank you for being on our show. Bye. Bye. This is a cover by Blue Line Medic. You can find this by going to our show notes page at songsoftoryamus.com. Since you're really an ugly girl get into the live version yeah we should okay now we cannot say for sure how many times the song has been performed but we have a thousand no we have a a lot it's a lot we have a vague number and the reason we can't say for sure is because of course 92 set lists aren't complete we can presume she performed at 100 percent of the shows yeah same with under the pink not complete set lists 
So the number that we came up with is 730. Can you believe that? I actually can. I can. I would think that it was more. (sighs) Do you want to hear the first time that we have on record her ever performing this song? Is it from Montreux? It is live at Montreux on July 3rd, 1991. This is the first known live recording. Take it away, Tori Amos, live at Montreux. Great. No one dared, no one cared to tell me where the pretty girls are. Those dim guys. Fascist panties tucked inside the heart of that pretty nice girl. Excellent, yes. That whole performance. The one of my favorites. Thing. The whole thing. I'm willing to say that she performed it at 100% of the Little Earthquake shows. What Same. do you think? Yeah. I mean, this was a staple. This is has always been a staple in her live show. Yeah. And like you said earlier, I think, when you don't hear it, it feels like something's missing. It does. Yeah. It's like you expect your aunt to show up at a family dinner with her crazy ambrosia salad or something. Yeah, like, it's like, it's where's just, Aunt Sally? supposed to be there. Yeah. <laughs> This song has an interesting life as far as radio and TV appearances go. It was never an actual single. As we discussed earlier, there was that promo single that was released, the picture disc, but it itself was never a single. So it's always a treat when she does a non-single on TV or when she does a non-single on the radio. Um, And so we have a few of those. You want to talk about them? Yeah. This is a clip from MTV Hour in 1992, and this is Tori Amos performing Precious Things. Um, you know those songs where all the guitar players play really fast and they get to show us how fast they are? And I guess I always wanted to be a guitar player and it never worked. just really never made sense. So I did my own fast little thing one night and it became this thing. Great performance. I love the little clip before where she's talking about wanting to be a guitar player, which we all kind of know she loves guitar players. So this song sort of evolved as a guitar riff, maybe from a guitar riff that she heard and kind of transmuted or translated it into her instrument. Maybe it changed the rhythm, whatever. But yeah, I can see very much like this is one of those like guitar songs. Mm-hmm. And of course, we'll put that on our show notes page, songsoftoryamus.com, and you can see the show notes for the song, and we'll put a link to that video, which is great. It's got a lot of hand close-ups. So watching her play this song, watching her hands move that fast and just kind of effortlessly across the keys, it's really, it's a treat to watch. Always, I, yeah. always has been, still is. On the Earthquakes tour, so anything in 1992, we consider part of the Earthquakes tour, and this is a performance from New York City, in April of 1992, April 20th, the early show. Those demi-gods 
So in tracking the girl, it's a little unclear when she started holding that note. As far as Montreux 91, she was not yet holding it. But by December 91, on a bootleg in Toscas, England, she was holding it already. And it, it was a total 92 thing. It just kept growing and growing within reason. But she would definitely hold the girl in 92. David, we are doing it. We are in the live section for Precious Things. This has been something that's scared me, but we're just going to do it. You're confronting your fear. How does it feel? It it feels very fearful. (laughs) I feel very fearful. (laughs) You look scared to me. Thank you. This is a clip from World Cafe, March 18th, 1994. Here's a quote from the book Pretty Good Years by J.S. Jacobs. And this is in reference to Tori Amos coming out in 1994 randomly and doing precious things on David Letterman. It wasn't even on the album that she was promoting. And I think it really surprised everyone when it aired. Anyone that was listening that was a Tori Amos fan, I mean. And here's a quote about that. The book says, Amos wasn't even originally set to be on the show. She was a last-minute replacement for a musical act that had bailed on the show. She was in town doing a concert, so she agreed to be a stand-in. She told Esquire magazine about the whole experience several years later. And she said, When I performed Precious Things on the David Letterman show, I couldn't say, Come. I said, I'll give it a diphthong, and you won't know what it is. I'll sing it as though I've got a dick in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so here that is. Here's Tori Amos with a dick in her mouth. So you can make me blah, 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 blah. That's exactly what it sounded like. I want to smash the face of those beautiful boys, those Christian boys. So you can make me that doesn't make you Jesus. So that David Letterman performance was from June 8th, 1994. What do you think? The whole, it's, I don't know. I love it that she walks out and she's wearing the wardrobe from the Cornflake Girl video, Mm -hmm. like the exact outfit. And you're like, oh, obviously she's going to play the lead single from her new album. Oh no, it's Precious Things. Yeah. (laughs) But she was a wild card back then. Maybe you'll get Muhammad, my friend, for no reason. Yeah, why not? Whatever. But you know what's interesting is that all of those were Letterman performances. Oh. I think he really liked her. Not that the other, like Jay Leno really loved her too, but. I think she had like a special rapport with Letterman. So I think they were kind of like, show up, do your thing. We trust you. And maybe that wasn't the case with the other shows. Right. And I think you're right. I think you can see sort of a confidence on the Letterman performances that isn't necessarily there in Jay Leno. And of course, I'm thinking when she came to do Spark and she was really nervous. But on Letterman, she seems a lot more comfortable, usually in general. Um, That's a good observation, David. This is from Really Deep Thoughts Fanzine, issue nine, winter 1995. 
And again, about the David Letterman appearance, it says, On a recent appearance on the David Letterman show, Tori was asked before performing to change some of her lyrics to satisfy the censors of national television. Amos decided not to give in. She says, quote, We told them it was calm, a word that producers at Letterman wanted me to use, and I said, come anyway. All you have to do with those geniuses is tell them that they want to hear, and then you do what you want. Isn't that funny? I think we should propose some other words that might have been substituted. Hum. Clam. Cram. Glam. Climb. Bum. Comb. Dumb. Like in combing your hair? Okay. So you can make me comb. Yeah. Like you can make me comb. Like, right. Like, you know, he's coming over. You got to prim. Yeah. You've got to really just make sure that your your mane is on point. Haunting. You can make me comb. Haunting but that doesn't Tory. make you Jesus. <laughs> Um, Again, from Beat Australia, July 1994, Anthony says, I noticed that when you played Precious Things on Letterman the other week, and she says, oh, you saw Letterman? And he says, yeah. I know she was tossing her hair back. Oh, (laughs) you saw me on the most highly rated late night television show? That's odd. Yes, we get Letterman out here in the middle of the night. And she says, so, how'd you like it? Go ahead, ask me who Poppy is. And he says, (laughs) it was great, but you had to censor yourself on that one. And she said... Well, I had to say calm or they were going to totally bleep me and I didn't want them to bleep me. So they put me in a funny position, but I tried to let it slip through. This is America, you know. I was like, don't worry, you guys. It'll be fine. I'll just sing like I have a dick in my mouth. (laughs) And Anthony says, it was good that they let you on without being backed by the Letterman band. And she said... Yeah, it was good. The only reason they let me on without the band was because they were in a bind. Because I'd just been on a few months ago, and somebody had canceled some comedian. And they needed someone in less than 24 hours. So I said Paula if I... Paula Poundstone, ruining everything. I know. So I said, if I do it, I'm playing alone. I like Paul and everything. Paul's a trip, but I wanted to play alone. And I did, and it was fun. She didn't actually play alone. She played with a dick in her mouth, so she was not entirely <laughs> alone. <laughs> Enough with that. This is from... You want to read this quote from the Baltimore Sun? On July 22nd, 1994, and it's Tori Amos talking about playing Precious Things live. Um, And the guy who's writing the article, J.D. Considine, says, There's a lot of rhythmic stuff you wouldn't be able to do without the tape. Technical term, rhythmic stuff. (laughs) And Tori says, The piano was a color, actually. It is the glue holding those tunes together, but still, it is only the glue. It's not like the wood also, whereas in something like Icicle, it's completely there. Where I'm working is within the phrasing, but the phrasing has always been where I feel. Some musicians, I think, go out and think of a set as, I have to get from this song to that song. And that's how they look at it. You know, kind of like if you're a race car driver, you're hitting your marks. Well, with me, I've made the decision, especially on this tour, to hit my marks on measure to measure. So I'm not going song to song, but measure to measure. That the whole world exists within that measure, not within that song, which is very exciting. Because you have to be focused for the whole piece instead of, well, if I get through Precious Things, then done that. Now I'm on to the next tune. It's more like I have to hit this phrase in Precious Things. How do I want to approach this? I kind of actually want to add a couple extra measures here on the piano. Or I want to totally change my approach to this note. No, all that's going on because of the different point of view that each song takes on each night. That's what keeps me challenged during a show. Absolutely, I see that. Agreed, and obviously there's a lot of variety in Tori's set list, but I feel like you can so clearly see this idea or this fact, I guess, in songs that she actually performs every night on a given tour. Precious Things, obviously, but also a Horses. Every night of the Dewdrop In Tour, the arrangement 
one could argue was the same, but it was the phrasing, the delivery was different night to night, and it continued to evolve over the course of those 187 shows until we get to the end where she's doing the turn away from the mic. Sometimes you couldn't even hear me thing, like amazing. Mm -hmm. And that even though she'd performed it close to 200 times and she could just, if she wanted to walk out there, do it without giving it a second thought, never happened. She was there present in that moment every single time. And that's amazing. Yeah. This is from June 16th in New York City. This is Tori Amos performing Precious Things on the Under the Pink Tour. There's another quote about Precious Things in 1994. You want to read this from Music Monitor, September 1994. Would you ever add any musicians or props to your live shows? Oh my God, he gave her this idea. If I were going to add something, not on this tour, of course, but for the next record, I envisioned bringing some musicians, but never a band. First of all, adding a band is not a smart move, and I don't think I'll ever make a move that isn't smart. The reason my shows move people is because I can alter the songs to fit the mood. If a band is on stage, you have to play pretty much the same thing every night. With just me on stage, I can throw in 16 bars here or change the whole piano part there, or I'm going to draw out this note or this line and make it really aggressive. On any given night, I can do something really dynamically different. I could bring it totally down. I'm able to do a different reading on something every night, which keeps it fresh. Now, with a band, I'd never have that ability. I don't like to try and recreate the record exactly. I'm thinking about maybe next time I'll bring an orchestra. I'd bring a string section, so when I play Yes, Anastasia or Winter or those types of songs, I'd have an orchestra. When I play the aggressive ones, I could take it down to just me and piano. To me, that's going forward again. You know there would be people throwing eggs at me. No, there wouldn't. Maybe not, but if I bring in a band to do Precious, they'd go... I don't want that. I want to hear something closer to the recorded version. Exactly. Mm. Which is not the case at all. And well, how got, quickly that all changed. Well, I'm really glad that... I think that touring with Caton in 1996 really changed her mind on what it's like to play live with someone and how you can still keep it fresh and how you can still, if someone's there providing texture, if someone's there providing the rhythm, you can still have room to vamp. I think you're right. Like anything in life, you got to find the right person. Exactly. So you want to move on to the Do Drop In tour? Hey. This is where things start to get interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Little earthquakes under the pink. Meh. No, but they were similar. And, you know, again, she must have performed them almost 400 times already Mm -hmm. by that point. Still, the song continued to evolve and kind of became reinvented over the course of the next tour so so this is from let's i like this performance this is from oakland july 12th 1996 This is a great performance about a month earlier in Milwaukee on June 8th, The Early Show. show 
Out of 187 shows on this tour, Tori performed Precious Things 163 times. Here is a really great one from the early show in Portland on July 21st. about your first do drop in show where she performed this so my first tori amos concert of all time and my first do drop in show and my only do drop in show was november 9th 1996 in albuquerque new mexico and she performed precious things and it was mesmerizing it absolutely was harrowing and cathartic in a way that i didn't understand music could be like that whole show, she was so open and so raw. And it was like, I want to be that. I want to be that in touch with my emotions. Were you prepared for it? Did you know it was coming? No. The feeling that I would have or what she would be bringing to the stage, you mean? Either. No. No. I wasn't prepared for it. I only wished at the time that I was closer to the stage because I wanted to absorb more of it. But that was back in the day when you would take binoculars to the concert. I took binoculars. <laughs> oh, I, I took just, opera glasses. Of course you would. But I took my dad's binoculars and I like really watched her every move. Because I don't know if I've told you the story, but I was in the very far nosebleed section because my friend, Andrew Morio, who I'd gone with, it was hard to find out Tory dates and stuff. And I found out she was coming to Albuquerque and it was really at the end of the tour. And I had been kind of following the tour online and stuff. But when I found out she was coming to Albuquerque, I told him right away and tickets were going on sale that weekend. And he didn't buy them. And finally, like maybe two or three weeks before the concert, he was like, I was just about to buy tickets, but they only have seats in the balcony. Is that okay? And I'm like, what? You said you were going to buy these tickets because you, he was, you know, his mom was rich. So like he was going to handle the tickets, but then he didn't. And we ended up sitting in the nosebleed section right next to someone whose watch went off during me and a gun, the alarm on the watch and they didn't turn it off. Garbage. It was me. Beep, beep. And a gun. Who sets an alarm for like nine, for like 10 o'clock? Yeah. it's like time to who go to bed. A, who sets an alarm for like 10 o'clock at night? Exactly. What like was that alerting that gentleman to? Exactly. What was he supposed to be doing? Taking a pill? <laughs> so here's Albuquerque 1996. <laughs> Thank you. 
here's Dewdrop in Boulder, the final performance from the tour of Precious Things. These precious things, let them bleed as it goes, and wash me clean as it yes. Wash me clean, darling. These precious things, This was from Tori Miss's live in New York VHS concert for Rain. This is Precious Things. Wash me clean. 
scary in ways, right? Really confrontational. Yeah. How does it make you feel to see things like that? It's incredible to me that sitting in a sea of a couple thousand people, I can still feel somehow exposed or like this performance is being directed at me and it makes me uncomfortable just by the sheer vulnerability of it, I guess. And you know, when I went to my first do drop-in shows, I've been keeping up with the tour and maybe even heard a couple bootlegs and had been hearing about how the song had evolved. So I was kind of prepared for it, but it was still very emotionally raw and difficult to watch. Again, that's one of the ways I would say this tour transcended anything close to being entertainment or a concert. Even it was more like performance art. Yeah. Here is a super cut of all our favorite girls. <laughs> Are you on the list, girl? Keep an eye out for yourself. Wow. <laughs> I'm into it. Yeah. How could you not be? Yeah. So many memories wrapped up in those girls. What do you think is going on? Well, you know, back to that exorcism. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real moment. She's working through something, but it's also, I mean, it's such a show-stopping moment. And it is. she knew it. Yes. Continued to and it evolve, evolve yeah, and exactly. get crazier. And she would drag her hands up her legs. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when she got to her chest, she would do like the little wave. Or sometimes when she'd end. get to her crotch, she would do like a little wave. Yes. Yeah. Did you ever go to a show with someone who wasn't prepared for it? You know, I wasn't prepared for it in 96. So I wasn't even concerned about the people I was with. I was just like living in it. In 98, it was a lot more like palatable in terms of like it was timed out you as we'll see it was timed out so you knew it wasn't going to take like 45 seconds to a minute. Right. Yes. To the casual listener, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, I think like I really want to highlight what you said earlier about how when you said tucked inside the heart of every nice girl, every sweet girl, this is really making that clear on how she's really polluting that word mm -hmm. or how she's really coloring that word. So you know exactly what kind of girl. It's yes. like a growl. It's like a monster. It is. Yeah. Snarl. Growl. Girl. Grrr. Love it. Riot girl. <laughs> ow, 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 ow. 
Ow. David, you gotta stop, stop putting it. your finger in there. Ow. Can't help it. I forget what happens. In 1998, she performed it 125 times. You wanna hear some? I wanna hear all of them. This is the first time she ever performed it with the band, ever. This is April 18th, 1998, and I'll tell you, she opened that show with Black Dove, but the moment Precious Things started and people recognized what she was playing, it was just like a whole new world. How many songs in? Five songs in. Mm -hmm. I think she realizes too, like, oh, this is a crowd pleaser. Black Dove continued to be the opener well into the main leg of the tour. That's true. Black Dove was the opening song all the way through the club tour and the European tour. But then she did a string of festivals after the like European like proper. She did like Pink Pop and things like that. And those were shorter sets that she would open with Precious Things and never open with Black Dove ever again. It just made sense. That was such a moment. It was a perfect opening song. Yeah, incredible. Perfect. Those drums. I love that. I, I love still it. get goosebumps thinking about yes. it. Yes. <laughs> you hear those drums start, you're like, oh my God, it's coming. Yeah. Oh my God. And not only, yeah, for so many reasons, especially because on that tour, we spent so much time in barricades, in GA shows, hours and hours and hours. And when it kicked in, you were finally like, oh my God, yes, I'm it's here. happening. <laughs> I'm where I need to be. Yeah. Okay, let's play some from the plug tour, shall we? Since we love it. Here's Thomas performing Precious Things at Pink Pop, which is an amazing festival, and I love this whole show. This is from June 1st in the Netherlands. Here is Tori Amos performing Precious Things at Glastonbury. And there's a video on YouTube, which is awesome. And it's weird to see her performing during the day, but it's I fine. know. Looks sweaty. I know. Everybody, not just her. No, I know. Precious Things. 
finally made it to the American leg. This is July 15th, 1998 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. clip from Precious Things, the performance on Storytellers in October of 1998, which I absolutely love this performance. I'll play my favorite part. That same year, about two weeks later, she did one of her most iconic television performances. I think we all go back to that performance sessions at West 54th Mm. as being one of, she was so comfortable. She was really at the peak of her prowess. Absolutely. This is from Sessions at West 54th, November 14th, 1998. What I love about the 98 version, you want to talk about this? Yeah. I mean, aside from the obvious fact that this was the first time we'd ever heard a full band arrangement, I do think she didn't do kind of a straight ahead recreation of the album. The standout moment for me was, aside from when the drums dropped out and there was just the, I remember, yes, with the bass, Mm -hmm, um, I think mm. that was very effective. She would also repeat those beautiful boys. Those Christian boys. I love that it was really like an invocation of yes. some and kind. It, it was reaching a climax. I always felt like the 98, 99 versions where she would repeat those beautiful boys, those Christian boys, that it was building towards something, mm. building to this moment of, so you can make me come, that doesn't make you Jesus. And the music breaks there. You know, there's that big drum riff right there. It was building to that. Mm-hmm. So whenever, as we see, as we'll see later in the live section, as we 
continues to go through it. She takes that away from us. She the takes Tory it giveth all. and the Tory taketh away. <laughs> exactly. She takes it all away. And it doesn't feel to me like that moment climaxes properly just because I'm always living in 98 in my head in that repetition. So I thought that was brilliant. I wish she would bring that back. God, I wish she would bring that back. I just, I agree, but I also kind of love that these moments are moments in time. Yeah. And they would never be the same, even if there was an attempt to recreate them. So, I mean, that's true, I guess. But one can wish. Please don't mess with Texas. We're here in 1999. Tori did two tours that year, the Five and a Half Weeks tour, and then to Dallas and back, which was an extension of that. And then she also did a solo little promo tour in the winter. So she moved Precious Things from the opening position for this tour into the closer encore position because for the Alanis tour, the Five and a Half Weeks tour, she could only do one encore song, and it was Precious Things. This is a performance from October 15th, 1999, the final performance with Katen. So here's Precious Things from Hard Rock Live. perform Precious Things on any of the solo shows in the 99 Winter Tour. She yeah. needed a little break. I think she'd come to prefer it with the band also. Yeah. It definitely came alive mm-hmm. with the band. Strange. Did she play it once in San Diego perhaps? We were there. I was there. We didn't know each other. No, we didn't. But she did she did it twice on the entire 2001 tour, but the first time she did it was the end of the American leg. Yeah. And we were there in a late night show. And it was like what we'd been waiting for. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so here's San Diego, California, November 20th, 2001. did it one more time at the beginning of December in Germany in Oberhausen and let's listen to that Scarlet. Precious Things came back into the set. Neither is an opener or a closer, but three songs away from the end. It got moved around. But when it first resurfaced, it generally stayed in the same spot, which was Precious Things, I Can't See New York, and Spring Haze to Mm. close the show. So here is the first time she did it on that tour. This is Montreal on November 20th.
Precious Things took a little bit of a musical turn. This is from PBS Soundstage, May 2nd, 2003 in Chicago. So what do you think about this arrangement? Very similar to previous mm. band incarnations. Without the guitar? With, yes, the exception yeah. of the guitar, of course. To me, she was handling it on the keyboard. It's never felt like it was missing anything to me, except for maybe like texture. But mm. I don't go to the song for texture. I go to the song for that riff, and I'm going for the, her growls and her vocal performance, you know? And the drums. And the drums, of course, but yeah. I never... I never felt like it was missing anything. Right. Um, I think John did an amazing job of kind of filling in some of that atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she did it 52 times on the Scarlet's Walk tour. And by the end of the tour, Tori had decided to close with Precious Things. I think she realizes like what a crowd pleaser it is. And like, you don't want to peak too soon. That's when she realized it was a crowd pleaser. <laughs> no, but Come I mean on. like putting it not as the last song, you realize like, oh, I can't follow Precious Things with almost anything. That's true. Yeah. So... <laughs> You've got to really end on a high note. Mm -hmm. And she knows how to end on a high note. (laughs) She performed it 28 times on the Lotta Pianos tour for a total of 80 times total in the Scarlet's Walk era. Some might say those are the same. Some might, but they would be wrong. They'd be me. Here we are in 2005. Do you feel that crackling heat? Hot as crap. Well, luckily we don't have to stay here for too long because she didn't perform it at all. Moving on. Why am I so precious? Here we are in 2007. American Doll Posse. She performs it 84 times on this tour. Calm down. God. She goes from... (laughs) She's a woman of extreme. Zero to 60 or zero to 84 or whatever it was. This is from... I'm giving you nothing. I'm giving you everything. (laughs) This is the 15th of June in Province Rock, Finland. Let's listen. You know, I have to believe that she really came to associate this song with the band at this point. And that's why she dropped it on the solo tour. And then it came back full force for Del Posse. Yeah. I know this was an iconic Tory song, so she couldn't have at all ever, nor would she give this to a doll. But if you had to pick a doll, what doll would you give the song to? I think the obvious answer is Pip, but I don't think it's correct. I don't think it's correct either. I think it's Clyde. I think it's Clyde too. Yeah. Wow. Because it is. Yeah. That's right. 
All right. You want to talk a little bit about how it came back with a guitar? Yes, we were blessed. Isn't it interesting? Because I've been listening to a lot of the Legs and Boots performances of Precious Things on Spotify. You can find them on Spotify or you can just buy them on iTunes, people. But Dan Phelps really kind of colored it in a way that Steve Caton hadn't. They just had such different approaches to it. This is one of my favorites. This is Phoenix on December 11, 2007. Were you there? I wasn't. Were you? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I got Clyde that night. <laughs> you got collided? <laughs> I when got worlds, collided. When worlds collide. Was the Doll Posse Tour the first time that they used the percussive breathing from the album track? Yeah, I think so. And in the little clip we played earlier, you know, when we were going through all the releases and we were playing like little bits, I put in like a breathing loop there. Mm-hmm. It really comes out and we'll see in 2009. Yes. What do you think that was about? Like just trying to add the texture? I think so. I think she'd been without the band for a while. So maybe they were just trying to keep it fresh and figure oh. out how they could mix up the arrangement a mix little bit. Up. Mixing it up. Mix it up. This is Phoenix 2007. <laughs> We are in 2009. It's sinful and it's attractive. Mm, I hope to one day be. <laughs> she performed it 54 times on the Sinful Attraction Tour in 2009. Guess where on the set list it fell? Right before Strong Black Vine. Yeah. She closed with Strong Black Vine and this would always come right before Strong Black Vine. This song never is without power, whether she chooses to do it solo or with a band. It's never without its power. So here is the first time she did it on the Sinful Attraction Tour in 2009. This is July 10th, 2009 in Seattle, Washington at the WAMU Theater. Here we go. may shock you, David, but some of the performances in 2009 are among my favorite performances. You're not alone. I think a lot of people cite these performances as being kind of reinvigorated. Yeah, there's something that she does in, as she's approaching the bridge with the riff that she had never done up to this point. Here is August 13th, 2009. This is at the Radio City Music Hall, and this is sort of emblematic of what she would do in this moment of the song, and it evolved to that. It didn't start that way. So I love this.
just like the dropping out of the piano, yeah. just to hear the like pressure cooking underneath. I love that. I love it. Here's another one. This is Frankfurt 2009. This song is ever-changing, ever-present. Her most oft-performed song, still keeping it fresh. Yeah. She was also doing something really cool with the girl section. This is October 9th in Zabs, Poland. In 2010, Tori Amos returned solo to perform on a midwinter and summer tour, all solo except for one time with the orchestra. And she performed Precious Things nine times. Nine times. Nine times. This is Pori Finland on the 23rd of July, 2010. It's 2011, David. Tori hits her Night of Hunters tour with a quartet. Quartet. The quartet. The Fab Four. She performs Precious Things 24 times with or without the quartet, David. This is trivia. Worth. Yes. <laughs> and it's really good. Yeah, it is. It was really good. This is, you want to do opening night again? Yes. Well, we can't, David, because she didn't perform it on opening night. Psych. Uh-huh, gotcha. Do you want to hear the first time she performed it on that tour, though? When was it? Saturday, October 22nd, 2011, in Denmark, in Copenhagen, at the Royal Theater. You want to hear it? Yes. Here we go. This is the last time she performed it with the quartet. This is December 22nd in Dallas, Texas. One amazing show that I would give my left arm to have released on official soundboard. Booth. Merry Christmas. Dressing up every day. I want to smash the faces
Another little bit of trivia, David. This is 2012, and we're on the Gold Dust Orchestral Tour. How many times does she perform it? And I'll say five. Dang, you're good. You know you're Tori Amos. <laughs> you have a future in Tori. You have a future in Amos. So here is London on the 3rd of October, 2012. It's unfortunate to me that I will probably never in my lifetime see Tori with an orchestra because I missed Gold Dust. That's something that's been on my list since the 90s for sure, and I don't think she'll ever do it again. You never know. The quartet was close. I would love to see Tori at the Hollywood Bowl. Me too. And that would certainly be with an orchestra. Yeah. Or a symphony. Los Angeles Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. On March 10th, 2013, Tori must play the Capri Festival in Montana, Switzerland. In Kranz, Montana, Switzerland. I don't know if any of that information is correctly conveyed because I'm not as worldly as I'd like to think I am. So here it is. From March 10th, 2013. No one died, no one sound of that crowd david means we're in 2014 jerry guess how many times she played it in 2014 20 21 you're so good i'm always off by one this is rotterdam may 26 2014 Here's another one from 2015. This is Barcelona, Spain on May 30th, 2015. She played it 24 times on the Native Invader tour. And here is the last time to date that she has played the song. This is the 2nd of December in Los Angeles. Were you there? I sure was. So was I. Hey.
My God. <sighs> That's a monster of a live section. I know. Yeah. You know what I, my favorite moment is when we get done recording and I add up all the times for all the tracks that we've recorded. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a seven hour episode. <laughs> so I think we're efficient. I think we are as efficient as we can as be with this song. As one could possibly be when talking about a song that's been performed 700 times plus. Oh, David. Is that the hardest one we've done? Is that or her best we'll song? Do? Is the next song? Winter, I don't know. Getting better and harder and harder and better. Long and hard. Long and hard. Long and hard. A song about Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our very long episode of Precious Things. You're listening right now to the Out of Body Experience remix of Precious Things by Rabbit and the Moon. This was iconic and we didn't really actually talk about it, but some things have to hit the cutting room floor when you're approaching three hours. If you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash songs of Tori Amos. We do it for you. We do it for us. We do it for Tori. We do it for the love of Tori. So if you have the means and you're interested, please support us on Patreon. If you don't have the means, but you still want to support us, go ahead and write us an iTunes review. Head over to iTunes, say, hey, these guys do good work. And that will really help our search results. We'll pop up higher in the Tori Amos. We should be the first thing when you search for Tori Amos Podcast. How are we not? Exactly. So we should be the first thing. So write us some reviews. Let's all rally behind that cause. At the very least, we <laughs> should be the first show that pops up because we're the only one. Right. So I'm confused by these right. iTunes metrics. It's because there's other podcasts out there that have more listeners, but that have had Tori on like once. NPR podcasts. So head over to the iTunes page and write us a review. You can also follow us on social media at Songs of Amos, and that's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're there. We respond to messages. You can email us at songsoftoryamus at gmail.com. Subscribe to our newsletter on our website, songsoftoryamus.com. And listen to our other shows, Never Shut Up and Tour All Year. We're coming at you from all sides. We're coming at you from every back, angle. below, look out. Anything else you want to say, David, before no, we wrap it up? I can't believe it. Sick. I agree. We'll be back next time to talk about winter. Winter. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Game of Thrones is over, but winter's still coming. Winter's coming. (laughs) Good night, everybody. Bye. Drive All Night is a production of the Sideways Society. For more information and links to things mentioned in this episode, please visit us online at songsoftoriamus.com. No one dared. No one cared.